I think the first thing you have to do is try and strip away any elements that you you don't feel contribute to the bowl. So say if you add something to your tare and then you eat the bowl and you don't taste it, you, most likely you don't need it. Uh-huh. And people want to dump all these things in. And like, I'm guilty of that for sure. It took me a long time to like figure out the right balance of things I want to add to my tare or my oil. Like you don't need to make a shallot negi niboshi oil. Maybe, maybe just to you and negi oil would be good. You know, you don't need all these elements. Um, but the biggest thing for me was figuring out uh, ratios and getting proper ladles, which seems like such a silly thing that your tools will help you that much, but they really do. Um, and making sure that you're consistent every time. And that, I mean, literally those ladles do create balance because it's the same every time, but you have to know like, okay, this bowl calls for 10 mil, that one, maybe 15, you keep it in your notes. And, um, but I'd say stripping away ingredients for sure is the most important thing. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Way Ramen Podcast. On today's episode, we have a very special guest. He's someone I've been trying to get on the show for a long time now, and I'm so glad he finally agreed to come on. We got Scott LaChapelle on the show today. Scott isn't someone who promotes himself heavily, but amongst people who make ramen in America, Scott is up there in terms of respect from his peers and his passion for making ramen. This episode is two hours long. We talked for two hours and it is just jam-packed with tips. Aside from our conversation about the NHL playoffs at the beginning, it's just jam-packed with tips about how to get better at making ramen at home. And I'm definitely going to be applying a lot of the things that I learned from Scott during this conversation into my own ramen. So without further ado, here is Scott LaChapelle. Shit, how do we start this? I don't know how to start this. It's kind of weird because I've been trying to get you on for so long and talk so much on instagram but you know thank you first of all i guess thank you so much for coming on the show really yeah of do, course of i course. appreciate it we've been trying to get this together you're supposed to come on our round, round table podcast and yeah really busy with busy your round table, with your <laughs> pop-up that time and so it's good it's good it's uh but i guess first let's address what's going on this week this podcast is probably going to come out two weeks from the day we're recording it but right now we're kind of going through this whole <laughs> the whole um george floyd incident just happened was it this week or last week Last and, Monday, yeah, one, yeah, one week ago been, today, and it's been kind of crazy. And I know that you, I know that you attended some um, protests and things where you are, and so, yeah. I mean, just what are your thoughts on that? First of all, because I feel like I've seen, I'm seeing it a lot on social media as far as like more than ever. Like I'm old enough to remember Rodney King and <clears> things <throat> like that, and a lot of people to, for this one. I'm not sure if it's because of coronavirus or just it's time to not be quiet anymore. It seems to be a lot more, um, not activism is not the right word, but just the awareness and the desire for people to spread the awareness about this kind of thing that's going on in America still today. It seems a lot stronger today. So I don't know, like what were yeah, your for sure. that? Um, at least here locally, Providence, um, I live in Rhode Island. So Providence is a very, very liberal city. Uh, I think GQ voted us the least friendly city in America due to our like, lack of religious beliefs and things like that. <laughs> so we lean like very, very far left. Uh-huh. Um, so there was, I think immediately there was a protest organized um, and friends of mine and um, people I've run into around the city, we've all discussed, you know, maybe we should attend. And um, it was, it wasn't as um, 
out of line as other protests around the country have been, but mm -hmm. it was really peaceful. Um, it was a large gathering for the size of the city. And it was just, um, honestly, it was a, as beautiful as it could be in the moment to see everyone come together. Um, but I realize it's, uh, it's kind of a strange thing to do this podcast, like on a week like this, where like we, I've discussed nothing besides like serious issues. Yeah. So it's like a, it's like a good lighthearted moment, you know, but I think everyone should be a little bit awake to it and kind of educate yourself in your community and uh, nationwide, especially. Yeah, for sure, man. Like, I, I mean, it's, it's so weird for me being in Hawaii to see it too, because for the most part, we all kind of get along in Hawaii. We have so much ethnic diversity here and it's kind of mm -hmm. like almost unfathomable for me to like think that these things happen. But I, you know, I've been alive for long enough to know that it's a real thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I grew up in a very, uh, like my, my, my town, my city I grew up in was very like diverse. So growing up like that, even in the Northeast, like you, you're kind of removed from it. You kind of become almost blind because yeah. half of your friends are, you know, it doesn't matter like where you grew up. It's more about money rather than the color of your skin. Yeah. So yeah. it's just, it's just, you, you get reminded very quickly that things are uh, pretty bad. So, yeah. <laughs> so hopefully this, this is a little bit of a break from the heaviness of what's going on now. Cause I like to talk oh, about will be. Yeah, a lot sure. of things. I mean, yeah. I'm sure this not it's not going to be solved overnight and even two weeks from now from today when this podcast comes out I'm sure we're still going to be as a country trying to figure out this thing and I'm really oh, yeah. hoping for like I said I remember I was alive during the Rodney King and old enough to remember LA the LA riots during Rodney King and it's like it's the same shit 30 years later you know like what's, what's yeah what's going on man so. we were standing next to an, an older couple and they were talking amongst themselves at the protests and I remember like the woman spoke to her husband and she was like, this is the same shit. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. it's yeah. like a generation later and it's the same things. And so it's, yeah, because yeah. I was probably not, it's probably going to still be a thing. Hope I'm hoping it's still going to be the awareness is still going to be there two years, two weeks from now when this podcast comes out, but for now, <laughs> yeah. have, a, have a fun <laughs> one. That's what I was stuff. trying to get at with the, with the whole, uh, I wanted to start off with at least like when this comes out, at least still be trying to, be in your community and plot and think and use use your head a little bit and yeah, be aware. Yeah. That's all I wanted. Yeah. I just wanted to kick it off like that. You know, it just feels a little, feels better now that I said it. <laughs> of course, of course, man. You don't want to just act like nothing's going on because yeah. like you see it online that, that that's kind of been an issue maybe in the past where, you know, like you have people trying to protest civilly and do these things, but nobody mm -hmm. cares or pays attention, you know? And so like yeah. you, people are saying like, this is not the right way to do it, but it's like they've been trying for generations there you know people have been trying to get people to acknowledge this thing for generations and so exactly exactly but, but it's not going to get solved on a ramen podcast so no let's, no let's talk, yeah. let's talk about some soup there's going to be some other things here too so so first of all let's okay so let's introduce who you are so people you're, you're like the people's champ of ramen maybe people don't a lot of people who make ramen know who you are but maybe some people who don't make ramen yeah. don't know who you are yet so how would you introduce yourself? And first of all, how do you pronounce your last name? Because I'm from Hawaii and I'm an idiot. I don't know how to pronounce That's, anything other than Japanese names and Hawaiian names. So don't how do you worry, I'd, I'd probably butcher your last name. Uh, so it's La, <laughs> La Chapelle. La Chapelle. Okay, cool. Man. Yep. Yeah. So how would you introduce yourself? Um, I'm just a ramen cook from Providence, Rhode Island. I, I started off cooking ramen at home and um, very quickly transitioned to hosting like dinners at my house. 
um, branching out as much as I could, building contacts. And I got really curious about doing pop-ups. Um, I love feeding people. It's what I, I'm a pizza cook by day. That's my, my full-time job. Um, and I've done restaurant industry work since I was 16, 17. Um, and it's all I really know. So I've just kind of stayed in this realm and, uh, eventually ended up working for Keizo in New York and, um, kind of shadowed under him and tried to like sap as much as I could from that experience. And, um, yeah, I'm just still just plodding along here through all this quarantine stuff, trying to stay creative and keep my output up. Yeah, man. Like, how did you, so there's like, I also know that you did some work in the music industry too, right? You told me that you were like the photographer. Yeah, so too. I was a photographer. Um, I, I was a photographer for local bands, um, more like freelance. And I would just, I had a music blog and I would post about, you know, the Providence. We have a very diverse music scene here. A lot of bands have formed here and um, we're very lucky in that regard. So I had a blog that covered that scene for a while. And that built me enough connections where I went on tour of the band um, eventually for like three months. We did a whole uh, U.S. tour and I kind of like bullshitted my way into the keyboard position. And I like fake played keyboard parts on stage. And it was it was a fun time. And I honestly sometimes forget that it happened because it was just such a weird, weird situation of being as someone who doesn't play music. But I've always been kind of on the uh, outer sphere of the music industry here. Yeah. As, as someone who's also been on stage faking like they could sing backup, backup <laughs> vocals, I feel, uh, I feel instant kinship here to us uh, fraud musicians. Yes. So that's awesome. It's just, that's just awesome. a strange feeling, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, we need to make it look like we're uh, doing something. So. I would just turn my volume down to zero and just play, nope. play keys and I didn't care. because I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was getting paid to to be around the country so it was yep. that's all i cared about and I had my camera so I remember, yeah i remember um there was a gig that we did and are we watched there was like a video taken someone took a video and my base our bass player was like oh you're you're doing backup vocals like no nah, no nah, i'm just pretending like i'm doing backup <laughs> vocals. I'm not my mic's actually off yeah my mic's actually off yeah. <laughs> cool man so how did how did that work so you did that music blog and then you transitioned <clears throat> into cooking or are you just cooking the whole time and you're running so i was blog? I was cooking um, while that was going on. That was kind of like my hobby always. Um, I did web development and then yeah. I, I love music and all my friends were in bands and I've always very been like very artistic and I kind of started buying cameras and became, I just became like enveloped in doing like show photography. Um, and then from there I started doing like show reviews, album reviews and um, just trying to like help support the local music scene. So I guess it was, it was always like synonymous. Like I was always working at the same time. It was never my job, oh, I see, I which see. it does not, it, it can't really be your job unless you're uh, working for a big publication. Yeah. Yeah. That's really yep. cool, man. I actually had a really similar website in 2004 where I tried to like promote local music, local musicians here in Hawaii. Yeah. The same kind of thing, but I was, so I would like shoot video and do things like that and interviews and Yep. Like that. Yeah, it's a lot of work and people don't realize how much work it is. And it's unsustainable, really, unless you're making some kind of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's more opportunities maybe today to kind of monetize that, but it's still a rough go because music is a weird thing. Like you can get burnout really fast because people who get into it love music for the music's sake. And then you realize like, oh, the people that make a lot of the money are not the musicians. They're like the the people that... Um, control the musicians essentially so so i figured out thing. like you listened to the the sarah gavigan podcast and you were so you're kind of 
like heavily that was your profession right you were in the music industry oh yeah like i i, I went to school for like um, web development and design and then after that my my friend that i gigged we gigged all throughout high school like performing at hotels and shows here on the island and he's like yeah. i'm gonna move to oahu and i got a big break there a big name producer in hawaii wants to sign me and like, I want you to be my backup guitarist. And so I was like, okay, well, fuck, I'm just going to drop everything and move to Oahu too. Yeah, I yeah. get this dream because this producer produced like the acts in Hawaii that we grew up listening to. And so we're like, man, he's going to like produce us. We played yeah, one gig. We played one gig. <clears throat> we bombed. Never heard from him again, basically. Just like, oh. like we bombed the first gig that we had a chance with him. And he's like, basically never called us back. But we kind of made connections on our own and we kind of, got known and we started a website to teach people how to play ukulele and that kind of took off to way bigger than we expected it to go so that's kind of yeah so i see it from the comments on youtube like you're so i see people comment like oh wow i didn't know he did ramen too so are you still doing like ukulele stuff yeah 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 well it's kind of like we're we're, i'm i'm slowly transitioning out because it's been 12 years and i'm a little bit burnt out to be honest but yeah i mean i'm still technically one of the co-owners of the site but we're trying to cool I can't disclose too much, but we're, I'm trying to transition out basically now. And then I'll talk <laughs> okay. about it when it's done, hopefully by the end of the year. So, but yeah, man, yeah. it's been a, it's been a cool ride. And there's like a lot of people that know about it that would never think like we've done, um, like, you know, do you know the show Bob's Burgers? Of course. So the guy who does the, the creator of Bob's Burgers, Lauren Bouchard is one of my co-founder students for ukulele. Oh, no and way. So like my co-founder actually did the, when they did the Bob's Burgers Simpsons um collaboration he did my co-founder was the one who did the ukulele for the that thing when he played oh, the Simpsons no theme on ukulele yeah and so um Lauren Bouchard came to Kauai and then my he we also did stuff with like Gene Roddenberry's kids or I didn't my business partner um the creator of Star Trek was I guess ukulele fan so we did stuff with him and then wow um the you know the movie Hotel Transylvania with Adam Sandler that's my co-founder yep. performing the ukulele parts for that movie so like yeah it's been pretty wild like it's crazy that we're like on this tiny island in the middle of the ocean and this ukulele thing has kind of been a pretty crazy ride but I haven't I wasn't directly involved in a lot of that stuff because I took care more of the business and the um, the bullshit yeah, the, 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 the dirty aspect stuff. yeah 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 and so my <laughs> friends got to do the fun stuff and I did all the bullshit stuff so then, you know <laughs> tertiarily on the outside saying i know a friend of a friend that knows lauren bouchard you know kind of yeah yeah my business partner is friends with lauren bouchard's kind of thing he doesn't know who i am so <laughs> but anyways so i wanted to ask you this before we get really into ramen how do you feel about the 2014 playoff for nhl and the bruins chances this year <laughs> <laughs> um I kind of like how the format is because we got the bye week, so I'm pretty yeah. happy about that. Yeah, you guys are high. To be completely man. honest, I'm not gonna lie. Like you put like Bruins fan, so I am of course a Bruins fan. But this past year, I have not followed hockey at all. Uh, like you've been I'm, busy. I'm so yeah. There's been no time for like following hockey, but um, I saw we got the bye week, and I saw <laughs> that the Habs the Habs are in last. So that's as good as I'm, I'm, I'm good with that right now. But if, they, <laughs> if the Habs get in, you might get, you might be playing them in the first round, technically. That's okay. And we'll, yeah. we'll crush them. I'm not worried about that. <laughs> I have a friend from Montreal here on the island and he's like a diehard Habs fan. And so it's all no! Yeah. I hang out with him once in a while and he's like. I will oh. say that I, I really do before, like before I die, I want to go to Montreal and I want to see the Bruins play the Habs in Montreal at the Bell Center. That's. Yeah. That's something that I need to do. That doesn't There's seem a like a... I respect them. I respect them, but, you know. 
that doesn't seem like a hard bucket list item to check off. I mean, you're already close enough to catch a plane right there. And yeah, of course, your boss, it's just a lot of money. Jersey. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of money. <laughs> I'd rather spend that money and go to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think the Bruins got a pretty good shot this year. They, 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 it's, like the, it's one of the last shots they kind of le- legitimately have. I feel like it's kind of, you know, yeah, the core is getting, getting older. Old. Yeah, the core is getting older. So Pasternak, that, Pasternak is Pasternak's might have, young. yeah, he's still young. I think he's what, 28, 26, something like that. No, no, not even. He's 23 or he's, four. He's young. Yeah, he's young. Yeah. So, I mean, he's got a lot to, of years left. You're going to have to build her on Pasta when Bergeron is, can't do it anymore. So, yeah, Bergeron's, I think he probably has this year and maybe next year for like prime output but char needs to i'm of the opinion that char needs to go he should have been gone last year yeah 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 anyways okay (laughs) ramen talk now so so how did you how did you like first find ramen you know like you've been cooking this whole time and what was the first thing that kind of got you into it so i don't know if this memory has now been like totally obscured in my mind just from being a, a child but um, my aunt lived in the city for a long time, uh, New York City, for a long time. And I remember when I was a kid, like, I almost am positive. She took me to a restaurant and I had a bowl there. And I only remember that because on my first trip to Japan, that was when I had my real first bowl. And um, my friend and I had traveled to Japan for other reasons. We're into photography. Like, at this point, we were very heavy. Like, we wanted to start a photography blog and travel the world, blah, blah, blah. And, um, of course, you know, we didn't really know the cuisine and we were very uncomfortable. We didn't know the language and you see a ramen shop and it's like, oh, we know what that is. So we'll stop in there. And I mean, that was it. Like we had one bowl and the rest of the 18 days we were there, I was chasing it every chance I could. And I was like pulling up ramen database before I even knew what that was. Yep. And, um, I was making, I was asking him like, Hey, do you want to eat this tonight? Do you want to eat this? And it was familiar to us. So we never, we always said yes. And we just kind of dove into it then. What year was that? Uh, 2017, 2000, I think it was March of 2017. So I haven't been at that, you know, at this that long. That's a lot longer. That's still longer than me. So it's kind of, that's, but you had probably, you'd probably eaten bowls and been familiar with the, the cuisine before that oh right? yeah 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 of course, yeah. yeah see my biggest exposure was like I, I swear i had that meal in new york and i asked Kazo, i'm like where would i have eaten that 20 years ago he's like i'm not <laughs> sure if it wasn't right i can then i don't know but um other than that yeah i knew the instant ramen packs and yep. that's it that's that was that was my limit of exposure so mm-hmm. going to japan kind of blew my mind open wow that's super cool and but and at that time, were you working at the pizza shop already? Or were you just working around various kitchens? Or um, So I've actually not had a lot of experience in like um, anything other than pizza places. I've worked at three three pizza places. Um, and that's been like the my uh, really only foray into like dining and restaurants. Um, but yeah, so I was at the pizza place for the majority. I've been there at the one I'm at now for almost almost nine years. Oh wow! Yeah, so it's, yeah it's been a while. It's it's a it's a good job. It affords me a lot of ability to do ramen pop ups and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So do you do your pop ups there at the pizza place, or did you find like? No, places? it's it's a little bit outside of the city I live in, so it's about a, a 15, 20 minute drive. Um, 
but I have done some prep there just so I, I made sure that I was prepping in like an actual commercial like kitchen, kitchen with an, yeah, commercial kitchen that had inspections and a walk-in and an ability to cool soup. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Yeah. That's crazy. So you, you went to Japan, you tasted these, this, this food that you've never really had before. And then how did you transition into like making it at home? Like, were you instantly trying to, as soon as you came back to America, like I got to try to make this or was it kind of like, man, I kind of missed So it. my first inclination, which was funny, like you'd think that I would come home and try and make it, but I, I actually sought out places that were serving it first. And, okay. um, there was two places in town. I'm not going to name them. Um, and I had eaten there a couple times and I actually ended up like, maybe my memory wasn't on point or my palate wasn't where it was now. And I started eating there a lot. And I'm like, wow, you know what? I think I can do it better than this. And then I just bought Ivan's book. And that was, that's what kicked me off. And then I found Reddit and I would like take things here and there from Mike's recipes and see what he was doing. Um, yeah. But mostly Ivan's book was like, that was my intro, man. And I followed that like the Bible. Wow. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, Ivan and Ivan and Mike was what I think a lot of people get started on those with those guys. So. I'm yeah. one for um, I like having a tangible thing in front of me. Mm-hmm. So I think I think Ivan's book helped a lot with that. And uh, yeah, I still to this day, I write all my notes for recipes down like in a moleskin notebook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool, man. I, so how did you when at, at what point did you get hooked up with Kazo? Like, how did you find Kazo first of all? And then at what point did you kind of reach out mm. to him? And I suck with dates, but um, after my first trip to Japan, I knew that I had to go back. So I bugged my girlfriend. I'm like, listen, we're going to take a trip. It has to be Japan. You have to come with me. And I decided, you know, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend money to travel. That's where I want to go again. So in between that time, the second trip, I started making ramen at home from Ivan's book and I was putting bowls on Instagram and I didn't know anything about the ramen community. I didn't mm-hmm. know about the Reddit. I didn't know, I didn't know how deep it ran to be honest. I was just really curious and wanted to get feedback. Um, so I decided, you know, I want to go back to Japan and I want to do some research and I found out about ramen check and I just started following him and I'm not sure Honestly, my timeline sucks, but I know that when we left for that second trip, we flew out of New York because it was way cheaper. Mm-hmm. So we could take a train or a bus to New York and the flight was like 300 bucks cheaper. So it was a no brainer. And I was like, we got to eat a ramen shack. And I think that was it. And then I, uh, man, my timeline sucks. But I remember we talked on Instagram and I leave comments all the time. And he answered me at one point and I was like, oh shit. I was like, he actually replied back. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's a real person. <laughs> I, then I started reading his blog and um, yeah, from then on, I just kind of treated it like, I really, I really kind of became like a devotee to what he was saying and how he treated the world, you know, like that I come from a very, like, I used to be really interested in tattooing and I wanted to be a tattoo apprentice. Mm-hmm. And it's a very similar uh, culture where you need to put the time in, put the hours in, and you need to learn from somebody who's done it. And they're not just going to tell you everything off the bat. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I know it seems ass backwards in 2020 to have that kind of experience, but it, it really spoke to me that these things weren't up for grabs and you had to put the work in. And it always kind of like resonated with me a lot that to see what he did, he went there and made that leap. So that was, 
from that point on, I was just very kind of like um, in tune with that, and it resonated a lot with me. So yeah, that's yeah, how that, that started. Oh, that's really cool. That yeah, they kind of like the apprentice. Like I, I kind of, it. I, I, I always think it's really cool because. In Japan, like, you know, you have like the Taishokin lineage and you have like these shops that came out mm. of this one shop. And I feel like Keizo has done something similar in America. And I think he might be the only guy who's done that where he has like a ramen shack lineage almost, right? With Eric and Vin. And I then... think I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And it seems like um, his, uh, he's very um, regimented in the way he does things. And it, mm. It definitely translates and you can see that his influence has definitely uh like shown through for multiple people and that yeah. says a lot that says a lot definitely definitely what what was your what were your first bowls like if you're going off ivan's book were you, <laughs> were you doing like shio ramens or what were you trying to do <laughs> yeah they were they were hot garbage man <laughs> um i will say that i was kind of stupid and i'm very stubborn that by my second bowl i was trying to make my own noodles uh-huh. I wasn't, I wasn't buying them. And I was like, listen, like I come from like a world of pizza where you make everything. Yeah. So like you make, you, you know, so I was like, all right, I'm going to make my dough. I can do this. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was terrible. So yeah, I, I started off doing Shio and then um, the first bowls that we, my, my buddy had on our first trip, the majority of them seemed to be like miso mm-hmm. and it wasn't because we were seeking them out. It just seemed to be like, that's what we ended up with. Um, so I started making miso tare and um, experimenting with shio, but it was really tough for me to source ingredients at first because mm. Providence, while it does have a very good selection for the size of the city, it's not so much, you're not finding any of the dried fish products. You're not finding specialty soy sauces. You're definitely not finding shiro shoyu or mm. anything like that. So um, even sourcing like the simple ingredients in Ivan's book, like I remember finding katsubushi was like, I had to go on like a manhunt and <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was the first maybe five to 10 bowls were all Shio and they were terrible. <laughs> well, Shio is yeah. like one of the hardest styles to do too, right? Like the Shiotare to me, like it's, it just feels a lot more challenging than some of the other things you could do. So you also chose oh, yeah. like one of the hardest styles to start off with. I, I guess I just didn't know, I didn't even understand the concept of like Tade and like there's three different bowls. And once I dug deeper, then it was like, okay, I can make a show you. And then once you make a show you, you're like, oh, it tastes, if you dump 30 mil into a bowl, it's going to taste good. Mm-hmm. But you have to kind of step back and then refine. And, but yeah, those first 10 bowls of Shio, like I remember feeding them to my friends and they're like, wow, this is great. Uh-huh. And I'm just sitting there like upset, like, no, it's not, it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for but, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like uh, that, that whole getting fish products into America from Japan, there's like all these like import laws that make it really hard. And that's why Niboshi is hard to find. Like I talked to this Japanese um, wholesaler, Japanese product wholesaler, and he's like, oh yeah, to get Niboshi into the US, it's like, because it's fish, I guess, and fish spoils so quickly, even mm. if it's like dried and, you know, it's treated really well, like you have to jump through all these extra hoops to get it in. So that's why it's hard. Yeah. just seems crazy because we can get so many products flown in fresh on ice but yeah i guess they you know you have to consider the demand and the demand for any boshi is probably not that high <laughs> yeah 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 definitely yeah all right so how does what so you have your first bowls of shio ramen and what is what would you say your style is today of what would, <clears> and, and ramen lord <laughs> wanted to know this question that's what he asked too and i, I already had the question my so. style 
yeah, like what would you consider your current style of ramen today from your evolution from those first 10 shio ramen bowls to today? Like, what is it today? You're somewhere to ask you like, oh, what's... So the evolution, I guess you would say, when I, when I started, I thought that maybe ramen had to have a lot of components to it. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I'd been to Japan and had those bowls, it's, you're kind of stuck in the zone of being an American where you see more and more and more. And my servings of soup were like, I didn't have the measured ladles. I didn't have any of that. So I bought these huge bowls from Crate and Barrel. And I was probably serving like 200 grams of noodles and 400 ml of soup. And I was like, oh, this is a bowl of ramen. It looks more like a bowl of pho or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I transitioned from that. And then through all these years, I guess I would say, um, man, I think that might be my biggest obstacle is finding a defined style. Mm-hmm. But I think that my favorite bowl to make now is definitely show you and i've probably in the last year i'll text cases recipe like once a week and be like i'm trying this now and i've probably made like 30 show you in the last year oh, wow. and i know i've texted you some and i've texted a bunch of people like hey try this and um i think it might just be this sounds so cliche but simplicity and trying to figure out which elements to let shine through mm-hmm. so like if i'm at home and I'm testing out bowls. I think I'll just, I just will put shoyutare in five mil of oil and eat noodles. And I don't really know if I have a style because I haven't really made enough. I haven't made enough full-fledged bowls to have a defined style. Yeah. I don't think I could, I don't think I could answer that question, to be honest. Still like I've made, I've made a lot of bowls, but they're not, um, like I've only had three pop-ups. So I don't know if I would have a defined style. Yeah. I see. I see. Yeah. It's, that's one of the harder things to kind of nail down. I, I, I really do think it's really, it's much wants... easier to just try to recreate things that you have and creating your own style. is like, that's like next level almost. That's what everyone searches for. Right. Like mm. even in music, if you're, if you're playing music, sure. You can play a stone song, but can you play it in your style? For no, sure. probably not. Probably yeah. not. So, I mean, I'm just trying to play the hits, but play them in my style. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, yeah. um, like my co-founder for my business, like he started off as someone who was just imitating a lot of people that came before him. And it took him a good 10 to maybe even 15 years to develop his own sound. And now when yeah. I hear him play, it can like, okay, that's, that's him, you know, but it's, it's a, it's a long process to do that. And I, I can imagine for food, it's the same thing, you know, like how long does it take you to come up with your own signature flavor and taste and someone can eat it who knows it like oh yeah that's what that tastes like that's who that tastes like so. i think i was very naive when i went into this um and i i think anybody who goes into ramen is probably not understanding the depth that exists within because mm-hmm. it's such a even the actual physical bowl is layered but the entire history and culture and all the ingredients they're so layered and you better have a really good understanding of that balance or you're gonna strike out and it's kind of like when you're so I, I was really into art growing up and I, you know, took a lot of art classes and it's kind of like drawing or painting where you better learn how to draw in a three quarter view and you better learn how to shade before you can go and paint an abstract piece. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, if, you, if, you, if you're going to make a bowl of ramen and you want to dump all these elements in that, you know, say you want to showcase your region and you want to do X, Y, and Z, well, you better understand how to make a shoyutare first before you go and do that or else your bowl is going to be very misaligned and it's not going to flow. Yeah. And you're going to see the weaknesses. So you have to understand those nuances first, I think, before you can run. 
for sure do you do you feel like this is a concept from music but there is like a level of like people people who are above average musicians can fool a lot of people who don't know music do you feel that's mm. similar in in ramen where like i'm sure like people oh like hell you, yeah yeah you know like you, you can people will serve something oh that's really good but someone like you or Kazo, mike or someone you know all the ramen shack guys tasting it's like oh man this is this is pretty fucked up you know like oh 1000 percent. like i've talked to Kazo about this and i've asked him outright i'm like man i'm like what do you like did you do any work like for your palate he's like what do you mean and i'm like what did you do like he's like i just ate ramen every day all day and it's that's what you have to do and it's the same thing for any any craft like that it's you know i'm sure you've heard the malcolm gladwell the ten thousand hours mm-hmm. yeah so i i believe i believe that i i full i fully believe that like if you give somebody a bowl with a decent aroma oil and a salty tare they're gonna be like wow this is good but you give that bowl to anybody who knows and they're gonna pick it apart yep, yep. and they're gonna they're gonna find something that isn't harmonious and you're yep. like oh shit man i you know and they're gonna pinpoint it so um yeah I, I do think there's I do think that it's exactly like that in music. Yeah. Someone who knows better will always know better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really that's that's so crazy. Like I, I've been approaching this like I unlike a lot of like a lot of you guys, I have like no culinary experience. So like I kind of came into ramen super cold, but I've been trying to look at it through like the lens that I've been more familiar with this whole way. And so like I can see it like this even if this i think this tastes good to me i know that there's things that i can improve on and even my video editing and everything that's like i always look at it through that lens because i've seen what it takes to get truly good at something even if i myself didn't ever get really good at music i've been around people that are masters at this thing and i could see them like i could i could at least see the world through their lens and it's like yeah yeah you know you can see that there's like levels to this game so it's it's really interesting but on the flip side on the flip side if you if you didn't know that that next level existed you would never elevate either yeah so you have to you have to know that that exists or else you're just going to be at a standstill yeah for sure yeah yeah for sure yeah it's crazy it's so crazy man like what it's kind of like that um so cliche but like the book of five rings or Miyamoto Musashi's quote the most famous quote is like once you can see the way you'll see it in all things and it's kind of like when I look at ramen it's like this is not too dissimilar from music or art Mm. or anything else and that's kind of like the the shokunin spirit of like Japan I think I think that's where that Mm kind of comes from where I did you had this podcast that's kind of gonna it's gonna go up two episodes before this but with abram and brian in japan and and nama and abram talked about it he's like you know a lot of these guys that are doing these kotowari bowls they don't even care if they sell ramen they just they're just so obsessed with the art of making ramen that that is like more important than even the money for them and it's like yeah i think that's a weird concept for people in the west to think about like you you own a ramen shop but the only reason you're serving ramen is so you can make enough money to make ramen like it's oh yeah that's <laughs> i mean that's when it becomes a fully creative endeavor right yeah. so you have to be totally driven by your craft like because ramen isn't a, a very cheap thing to do at home so no, it's not, yeah like when i said earlier that like pizza affords me the ability to do ramen that it might be why i'm still there like it, it allows me the time and the money to mm. put to pump back into my hobby so it's the same as any other thing tattooing photography like you gotta fund it yeah. You really do have to. You really do have to fund it if you want to do it on any scale. Uh-huh. You know. Do you so, think? Do you think there's room for that in America? That mentality of like that kotowari bowls in America. I mean, it, it, it's it's so contradictory to like 
the American restaurateur's mentality of like, okay, I'm going to, I talked about this with Gooch, <coughs> Chef Gooch too, which is the last episode right before this one where it's like, you know, the success, define success as a restaurateur in America. It's like you have 10 restaurants, 12 restaurants, 15 restaurants, locations. Mm-hmm. You're running a multi-city empire of restaurants. And that's what success is. Well, I don't feel like a lot of these guys that people like us respect in Japan, I don't feel like that's their definition definition of success when it comes to ramen. And so do you mm. think something like that can fly in the US or is it just like such a far cultural leap where No, I see I think I might I might differ from a lot of these guys who have opinions on like the Kodawari thing becoming reality because I think it I think it can be, but I also live in a very like small culinary bubble like i'm from providence and we have johnson and wales here which mm-hmm. is a huge destination for people who want to study food and um our restaurant scene is out of this world um like we have multiple mentions in the new york times and gq and we're a very very small city so i look at a city like us and i see other cities around the country that are experiencing the same kind of um culture as us like uh, nashville mm-hmm. or portland portland maine or um cities of that scale and you see or like even like Asheville, North Carolina, and they care about those things and they will pay for them. Um, I don't necessarily think you're going to achieve that if your goal is to set out and make money. Mm-hmm. But I think if you do it the other way, where if you care about your craft and you put the time in, I think the money will come. Um, and I think that, you know, as far as being a successful restaurateur in America, I don't think you need the scale of 10 restaurants. Um, but I think if you, I, th- I think it, I think it'll happen here. Um, I think in a larger city, it might be a big, uh, bigger issue because you don't have the, you're not like a, a big fish in a small pond. You're just another, another fish existing. Right. So like yeah. there's going to be 10 ramen shops in a mile radius. Why would they pay $3 more for your bowl? Yeah. So yeah. LA or New York or Seattle, those are even the Bay area. Like you're going to have a tougher time accomplishing that. And even then, like you look at the noodle and haystack guys, like you look at Clint out in the Bay area. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if, if you're not going to be the average bull, you better be way above average. <laughs> yeah. Like what, what he's doing could be served in a Michelin restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. And sure. that's the level he's at. So, um, I think there's room for it. And I think, I think it will happen. And we're, we're in the infancy of this culture here. Now, how so, crazy would that be? If like the the real Kodawari shops pop up in like Midwest America, where you, you can be like a small, a big fish in a small pond. And because of that, you can thrive as like a specialty shop that's doing really high quality stuff. And how ironic would it be like the big cities? You wouldn't do, be able to do that in the big, I just find that so crazy. Cause that's mm. for sure. Like a possibility, right? Like where, the smaller so, areas might have a better shot at it to, to try to carry on that tradition of that kind of shop. Oh yeah. Like even in Boston, do you follow the, um, the guys at Sudamen in Boston? No, no, um, no. They're, they're from Osaka and um, I'm not sure what their, their history or lineage is, but I think Keizo might know them. Um, one of the chefs came here and he has that whole concept of uh, a thousand days and the restaurant's going to be open for only like three years or so. And, he's been putting out bowls and he defines them by the year of his lifetime that he had them. So he has like a 1985 show you and like a 95 Python and he's doing like total Kodawadi, like makes the noodles in house. And that's the closest thing we have here. And he's in Boston and there's a line around the block every day. And he's, 
and he's charging upwards of 20 bucks a bowl. Wow. And it's so when I see that and I see the success that he's having rightfully so it gives me hope. And, um, I mean, I've had good turnout at my pop-ups and I see the, the culture here and I know that there's room for it. I know that people will respect it and pay for it. Very cool. I feel like, yeah, that's a big, that's kind of a big discussion. I think it's worthwhile having with anybody who wants to do this kind of things like ramen pop-ups to ramen shops and things. It's like, what, what is your definition of success where it's like, is it about making them as much money as possible? Or is it about making ramen the best ramen you can make? Like that, that like America's, I just, just what, I mean, it's something that I've been struggling with myself too recently, where it's like the year that I had my business and I made the most money, I was probably the most unhappy. And so it's like, mm. well, if that's the fucking case, then what am I fucking doing, you know, with my life? Like, yeah, money. I mean, you hear that adage all the time, like money doesn't buy happiness. But yeah, it, it, it truly doesn't. Yeah. It, it, I mean, of course, you have to have doesn't. enough money to, to, to survive and do the things you want to do and provide for your family and your loved ones. But once you get much beyond that, there, it, there really is diminishing returns on as far mm-hmm. as like. And so like, but mm-hmm. that's what America has defined as success for so long. It's like an excess of things and so and it and i just think it's like a pretty interesting opportunity with this whole you know coronavirus what what that's done with our supply chains and fucked up everything and i -hmm. see it in hawaii at least where people are getting back to trying to grow things themselves and produce smaller scale things and these things are popping up here at least for the moment like what they could do for like what almost like resetting what success is for people i I think Mm. that'd be a really cool opportunity that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Resetting. Yeah. yeah. Resetting. There's, I mean, Providence is, we're very fortunate here. Like we have a great like local community of farms and purveyors and the, uh, the actual infrastructure here for supply chain, as far as like local things go and vegetables and meat. And it's very strong. And I think that it's only gotten stronger during this. Um, there was like a lapse where, um, farmers didn't really have the means to supply directly to you know consumers at home they yeah, were yeah. usually doing wholesale and they've kind of figured those kinks out now and they're doing home delivery and i hope it results in more people shopping locally or at a co-op or at a farmer's market or even just like like when i buy chicken for pop-ups i drive to the farm and i buy the yeah. chicken like um i hope that that i hope that changes you know and even in places where that supply chain isn't set up there's abilities to have those deliveries and change the way that you, you know, you eat all your food. Yeah. 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 It's a really good, I think like, like it fucking sucks for a lot of restaurants, but it's also a cool opportunity for, to just reset the American mindset of like how food is gets to you and how, how you should approach obtaining your food and things. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So what, what shops that you, that you ate at in Japan or just in general have inspired you like the most? In terms of how you make ramen oh um oh man i so the first time i had nagi was like it it like lit my friggin pants on fire man i remember we were out drinking golden guy and somebody's like, you have to check this shop out and this is before i knew about ramen and we ate at nagi and i was like holy shit i was like i've never tasted anything like this and then from that day on like i i love niboshi like so much like the dirty show you at at shack is i tell Kazo, i'm like save me some paste when i come down this week i want to eat a bowl <laughs> and um yeah i love nagi um that's interesting because I, I didn't didn't nagi in their in their 
California location cut out their Niboshi? Like, didn't they do something? Yeah, they like started Tonkotsu. And yeah, I've yeah, never yeah. been to the one in California, but I mean, I've been to multiple Nagi locations in Japan uh-huh. and they all, they all serve something different. I think that's, okay. I think that might be like their shtick, right? Like they kind of do like a different bowl everywhere. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I could be wrong on that, but um, yeah, I love Nagi. Um, I love Suke Man. The first time I had a bowl of like Tonkotsu Gyoka, I was like, whoa. I didn't, I, so when I had these bowls, it was before I researched them on the internet. So mm-hmm. they all came to me with no, there was no background. So, so, so you I had no this, preconceived like expectations or anything. You're going in clean. Zero, wow. zero. We, we would make friends out drinking and I would say, listen, I love ramen, ramen. Where can I go and eat this? And they'd say, oh, this is my favorite shop. And they'd give me an address and I would just go. And then it was just like every single bowl to me was completely new because I didn't, I didn't know about the culture. I didn't know about any of the styles. I was totally ignorant. I mean, I, I think I still am, but um, Nagi blew me away the first time I had it. And then we went to, um, I don't know the full name of the shop and it's probably my favorite shop in Japan and I'm an asshole for that. But it's, I think the slang name is Ramen Sanku or Ramen Sanku and it's in Osaka. It's in the Fukushima district and they serve like a very strong Yiboshi ramen too. And they're always like top three or four on table log. And I've gone there on every trip multiple times. And I remember the first time I ate that, they, they brought the bowl out. And this is before I had Nagi. And they brought out the bowl with the Niboshi right on top. Yeah, bowl. yeah. And my friend looked at me and he was like, well, do you want to eat this? And I just like ate it. I just popped it in my mouth and ate it. And I was like, yep. And that was like, that was the turning point. And after that, I had Nagi. And I guess you could say Niboshi might be my favorite. I'm not sure. That's interesting, man. Like Niboshi is something like I had Sarah on and she's like, oh, people don't like fish where I am. So I have to cut it out. And, but you're like, you loved it. It's really cool to see that, you know, like. Yeah, I love it, that flavor. It, it has a, like, there's probably tons of people out, out there like you that just as much people that, in, that eat at Sarah's restaurants that don't like the Niboshi flavor, people that love it too. So that's really mm. cool to know, you know. Cool. But I think it's one of those things, like, I, I had never tasted anything like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the I'm from, like, an area of the country where there's a very big Portuguese population, and okay. I'm, I'm half Portuguese, and, um, like, it's, we do a lot of, like, the salt cod and a lot yeah, of the yeah. seafood, but it's not that flavor. It, yeah, that's yeah. a totally, that's a totally different flavor. So having that for the first time really, like, really blew my mind. Yeah, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, we, we use a lot of that salt cod in Hawaii things too, because there's a large Portuguese population in Hawaii too. So mm, it's kind yeah. of integrated its way into Hawaii culture as well. Like the, the ukulele itself is a Portuguese instrument, descendant of a Portuguese instrument. Oh, no way. Yeah, it's called the, I fucking forget what it's called. But it's it's definitely like, if you look at the history of the ukulele, it's like, oh, these Portuguese sailors brought their instrument from Portugal in here. And then the Hawaiians modified it to make something that they could play. And so that's, that's where cool. it comes from. Yeah, so nice oh, that's, that's awesome okay so yeah. so man niboshi that's really cool yeah right. i guess i guess you could say that's the one that like kicked it off yeah <laughs> so a lot of people not a lot but we have a you know there's a quite a few people that are getting into making ramen newer than you probably like where i'm at like what what are some basic tips and things you could give advice you could give these to, to beginners who are starting out making ramen Oof, if I could go back and like advise my own self on mm. what to do, I would say like go slow. It's it's really fun to make a, a whole bowl at first. And I guess if you told someone to go slow, they'd be like, no, because they want to eat a whole bowl that looks really good, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you don't, you don't, the first time you do it, you don't understand the time it takes to like focus on each element. For sure. So 
if you don't understand that, then they're all going to be overlooked. So I would say maybe slow down and understand that Brahma is something that takes like days of passive energy, right? So like sometimes you want a soup and it's not going to taste the best until two days after it's made. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you want noodles and you don't want to eat them right after they're made. You want to let them sit in the fridge for three or four days. And when you start off, you don't have that, that foresight to let the whole thing compile for days in the fridge. But I would say just take your time and start simple and focus on some flavors you want and don't necessarily adhere to a recipe because it's not going to get you where you want you, but you have to have some kind of understanding of the taste you want in your head and maybe try and translate that into the bowl. How do you, how do you build that like kind of flavor database? Kind of talked to Kanda about that as well. He gave really similar advice. Like he kind of recommended you just taste a bunch of ramen as well. Like kind of like Kezo says too, right? Kezo's like, you just got to eat a lot of ramen and you figure out what you want. Like how do you, what is it your thoughts similar where, you know, that's kind of how you build that flavor database and then you can kind of understand what you need to do. Hmm. So I think most people like me probably don't have the ability to taste a bunch of ramen. So that's why, that's why, that's why they come home and make it. Right. So Mm. if you have the drive to spend 20 hours to make a bowl, I'm going to guess that you probably don't have a shop within driving distance. (laughs) Yeah. So what, what I would say is, um, maybe figure out, maybe highlight, one element right so you have shops in japan like kamoto negi where they do like the duck in the negi soup like maybe try and make a soup that has only one element and see where it shines and see where you want to showcase it and maybe figure out the best way to extract all that flavor you can maybe you make a negi oil and then the only aromatic in the soup is negi maybe that's your only topping but then you learn where to use that and now what timing what temperature what method and you know there's as you know, ramen, you can go so deep, but I would say maybe figure out which flavor you really want to focus on for those first couple of bowls. And once you nail that and you know how to use it, then you can expand. You can go beyond that and add on and add on and build. I, 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 I feel like that was kind of my issue and I'm kind of working through it is that having the confidence to know what you like and what you think is taste, what you think tastes good. I think that's why people like me, rely on recipes initially a lot is because we don't know like we, we can't it's almost like we can't trust our palate like is it i think it tastes good but what do what do other people think like you know like kind of like what do you think and i'm gonna i'll say whatever you say so yeah that's kind of like a big challenge but i really think that's probably the right way to get better like you have to develop that own sense of taste and what tastes good to you and have faith in that that other people are going to think it tastes good too yeah, definitely. You have to have, you have to have some confidence in the bowl. And I think that it, your confidence does come across too. Like if you, if you push someone a bowl and you're like, very like, you know, kind of coy about it, that's going to come across. Like you need mm-hmm. to hand them that bowl and they need to feel the confidence in it. But yeah, um, yeah I think, but don't get me wrong, having the palate and understanding how it, some things should taste um, and then knowing how to break those rules after you figure out how they're supposed to taste. That's, mm-hmm. that's the key right there. You know, I just, it's so funny. I just watched a video. I don't know if you know this channel, but there's a channel called, um, I think it's called Roido, Roido Gohan or something like that. It's a Japanese YouTube channel that they, they just eat like a shitload of EAK ramen all the time. They eat all kind of ramen, but like majority, I would say like not 80% of their videos are about EAK ramen, like going to EAK shops, eating EAK ramen. And this week they tried to make it, or one of the guys tried to make it at home and he had, no, I've never, I've never seen these guys. I'll, I'll send you the videos afterwards. <laughs> and, and he served it to them and they're like, 
this is fucking terrible. Like, and because they eat it all the time, you know? So it's like, man, even if you eat it all the time, I was thinking, as, as I was watching it, it's like, man, even if you eat it all the time, you still can't fucking get it, like, on your first try, you know? It's kind of almost like a relief. To yeah, it makes, makes you feel better, right? Like- yeah, yeah. Because this, like, I swear, they probably eat more EAK than anybody I've seen on the internet. Like, almost every week, it's like, oh, we went to this EAK shop and EAK, EAK, and then he tried and he's like, like, it was like, oh, the guys are like, this tastes like, it's pretty like, I don't know if it's like, it's not racist, but he's like, this tastes like ramen you'd get overseas. Like, it's basically really <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's a pretty sick burn to his friend. But I mean, he's like, probably not wrong, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, uh, and even so I was like, even guys that know that taste it a lot, eat it a lot, they don't know how to do it. So that really speaks to that understanding yeah. the core components of what you need to build that flavor. It's tough, man. Like, I don't, like, that's why I, I think I feel the call to, like, go back and eat at all these shops in Japan yeah. is because you don't, like, I don't really think I know what what's what yet, but you have to keep eating and eating and eating and realizing what works and what doesn't. And it's just a constant refinement of your own palate and also what you think people are going to enjoy. I think um, where, when I had the Kandasan on, he talked about how he spends three years on each style or he spent three years on each style. So, he did nothing but show you ramen for three years, every single yeah. day, just working on that. And you think that's a good approach to do it? Or I, 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 it's so like hard to kind of force yourself to kind of stick to that one style, but I'm sure you learn everything about it. Like he would learn about why Niboshi tastes a certain way and how you get yeah. flavor out of it. And how, how so different I'm not, types of I, I will never, I'll never say that somebody else's method is, isn't a good way. Cause whatever works for them works for yeah. them. Yeah. But I mean, me personally, I think, I don't have that kind of mindset. I think I definitely have inherently some like ADHD going on. <laughs> like I can't, I can't focus that much on one style, but I will say that I probably could eat that style every day uh-huh. and take notes and learn. But as far as making it goes, I would need to have some kind of uh, change in pattern there. I couldn't do the, I couldn't make the same thing every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like, I think there's really something tangible and and like there's something real to the fact that if you make it i feel like you're a little bit more um your senses are dulled to what you're eating so i think a lot of times to really get the the effect somebody else has to make it for you because i think there's like an actual i don't know who did the study but i remember reading an article where if like somebody else makes a sandwich and you make the sandwich the same components, the same ingredients. It's going to taste better if they make it. Yeah. yeah. Because your, your senses aren't dulled during the whole experience of making it. And it's tough, man. Like I made a bowl this morning and it was just the same one that I always make. And it, I just let it sit in the kitchen and the aromas were sitting in the house and I might be psyching myself out, but it tasted mm-hmm. like nothing. And I was so disappointed. I was like, this tastes like crap. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah I, think there's, I think there's something to that. Like if you labor over something in the kitchen, you, eating it is a little bit less rewarding. For sure, man. Like I get that all the time when I'm just just cooking dinner for my family. Like after I eat it, like oh, I don't really want to eat this anymore. After you cook it for like spend a day cooking it, I don't really uh-huh. feel like eating it. So I just eat salad, or something else. And the punch, the punch isn't there. Like when you eat it, the you don't get that same like immediacy of wow that you do when somebody else makes you a bowl. Yeah, yeah. At least, at least I, I personally for me, but that I, that's why like- I could couldn't make the same thing every day for three years and have to switch it up. <laughs> That's, that seems like such a hard, like a, like a conundrum where you're trying to discover what these components taste like. Like you're trying to nail down what katsubushi does to soup or what niboshi does to soup and how to extract chicken. And it's like, 
<laughs> you you have to go in into that knowing that your sense is going to be dulled after you you've simmered a chicken for six hours and you're tasting it and it's like you smelt it for six hours at that point it's, it's a not really gonna strange be the same thing. thing and you know what honestly this sounds so strange but this is kind of how i came to this realization is that i used to eat like my favorite thing to eat in my pizza shop is a small pepperoni pizza and mm. i'd make it probably two maybe three times a week and i realized that when i actually would have somebody else make it at the shop and I didn't cook it myself, mm -hmm. I would enjoy it more. <laughs> yeah. And then I, so like what I eventually did was before I went to go in and start my shift, I would call it in and I'd show up and eat it and it would taste way better. <laughs> and that's how I, I don't know, I, maybe it's in my head, but I believe in that. Like when you, when you work over something like that, I, I feel like it really does, you become a little bit immune to the punch. So. I, I think I've seen it like, you know, like you've watched Sano videos and like all these people, when you watch their vignettes that they do in Japan, their deshi are making their bowls and they're giving it to them and then they taste it and it's like, mm. oh, that's good enough to go. That probably is the reason why what you're talking about is like if they were to make it themselves, serve it themselves, they wouldn't get that same, they wouldn't be able to judge it accurately. Yeah, because aroma, I mean, aroma is so much of food, so... If, you're, if your senses are being exposed to it for the 10, 20, 30 minutes, even an hour before you eat it, yeah. when, you go, when you go to eat it, you're not going to have that same impact. And yeah. Such a weird thing to talk about, but I, re I really believe that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, so how do you think how someone should approach learning about these ingredients? Like if, <laughs> like if like they're like where you are, where I am, where they can't easily have access to these things, these shops, and just go and eat at Ramen Shack and taste what it's supposed to taste like. Mm. Like, how do you hmm. develop that flavor database for yourself um, to know like, oh yeah, this is the optimum chicken flavor is this way. This is what it tastes like. This is what the flavor that I'm shooting for from this, this negotiation. Oh man, that's so, I mean, I guess that's so relative to your own palate, but I guess, hmm, I don't think you could personally, like if you're, a, if you're in like a ramen wasteland, right? And you can't eat a bowl. I don't think you're going to, you shouldn't be developing like preconceived notions. You should just make something until it tastes good to you. Like figure uh -huh. out like, you know what? Maybe I like when the stock is a little bit like thick and, and cloudy, or maybe I like when it's clear and clean. And you know, I, I wouldn't say go by what you think, you know, should taste good, but I would mm -hmm. say just make it to what your own palate is because it's, you're not controlling what those shops are making. You're only controlling what you're making. So I don't think you can really, I don't think you can predict that or, you know, how things should taste. And I think it would be the wrong path. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe that, maybe that chilling the soup for a day and letting the noodles rest for a day and all that stuff kind of helps to reset at least a little bit until you mm, can taste it. You taste it the next day. It's like, well, this is actually like a clearer, truer judge, judgment of what is actually, what actually the thing that you actually made. Oh, you're saying like, how do you, how do you negate the actual, like, yeah, them, like, like yeah. having their senses dulled? But oh. I think what you, what you said also was very valid and stuff. So I, I'm not, I think that was great that you said that, but I'm just thinking. Oh, I misunderstood it. your question. No, yeah. no, no, um, no. That's not your fault. Maybe keep the lid on the pot when you're boiling it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't smell it. Just shove some Kleenex in your nose while you're cooking. Yeah. <laughs> Utilize that mask. <laughs> yeah. Put your N95 on when you're cooking. <laughs> Cool, man. All right. So um, I, that was kind of the next questions I had, too. So I want to get into some listener questions. Oh, before we get into listener questions, I just wanted to get quick hot takes on some methods or things that you found best practices. And if not, if you don't have anything, you don't have to say anything for kind of the components of ramen. Cool. So like just hot takes on each of these things. So like 
for soups, your hot take on chintan, the best method, the bricks, et cetera. Like, what do you feel are kind of like the best ways to make that shine? Um, so I've done, I've done a lot of methods for chintan. Um, I've messed around with pork. Um, I've done beef. I've done chicken. Um, my personal favorite, although I won't serve it at a pop-up only because of dietary restrictions. I love a mostly chicken with an addition of pork chintan. Um, at around like 190 to 200 degrees, like eight to 10 hours. And that's, that's where I'm at on that. That's my favorite. And it usually ends up being, depending on like the mix of bones you have, it's anywhere from four to six bricks. It's got a good body to it. And I always cut it with dashi. I love cutting it with dashi unless I'm doing like a strictly chicken, you know, what they call the new wave bowls. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I love, I love that mix, the chicken, pork, dashi, um, and if you, you need to really get the body up to six bricks or so. So when you cut it with the dashi, it still has a good heft to it. And that's my favorite by far. That's my favorite mix. Are you throwing any like chicken feet in to, to bring the bricks up when you cut it? Or are you just doing pork bones? Oh, hell yeah. I use, I use a lot of chicken feet. And that's okay. something that um, when I first went to Shack, I would only use chicken backs or, or whole birds. And the whole birds here I get with the feet on. So they do have some feet, but not the amount that you would normally be using like mm -hmm. in a shop. Um, so even if you use whole backs, if you're not pressure cooking, you're not going to get that extraction. Um, so you need the feet, the addition of the feet. So yeah, I use a lot of feet at home for sure. Cool. Cool. And uh, if I'm using pork, I'll use trotters instead of chicken feet because it hmm. kind of gives you like a little, uh, it's like a cheating. <laughs> you don't, you don't need as many. You don't have to clip them either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of, always kind of weirds me out clipping off the toenails of the, the chicken feet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about for python? Do you cut, do you cut with dashi too for that? Or do you just kind of like, I have, yeah, I have for sure. Like, um, one of my pop-ups, I did like a tonkatsu gyokai and I, I cut it with dashi instead of, instead of actually putting all the elements in the soup, I just cut it with a dashi, like a really strong nebo dashi. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I have, um, I've done tori python and cut with dashi and, um, I've never done a, a beef python with gyo, gyokotsu. Um, never done that, but, um, I also love like a straight tonkotsu. I've only done that a really a few times. I make a lot of sukemen, but um, just a straight tonkotsu. But I have only done that maybe like three or four times. Um, yeah. What bricks do you go for that? Like on average for the 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 pythons, the tonkotsus, the tori pythons. Tonkotsu, anything above six, and a sukemen, anything above like thirteen, fourteen. Um, oh, wow. Sukemen's usually like my sukemen's usually like sixteen to eighteen, but. Like I've, I've followed the same recipe multiple times and it always varies like somewhere in that range. Like I don't hit the same number exactly every mm -hmm. time. Um, even with the same bones, same weight, same water. Um, it'll always be slightly off. And I'm sure that maybe has something to do with if I do blending or if it's open pot or yeah, there's so many variables to control, you know? Do you, so is it like when you're doing, when you're chilling your soup for the tsukimen, it's like just hard jello or like, Oh yeah, it's like solid. <laughs> it's like solid. When yeah, you're it, it's yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a rock. Like, <laughs> uh, good to know. Good to know. And I and also know that you you're kind of like um, I know Keizo doesn't like you to use MSG either. And I feel like you're kind of in that same vein, right? Like you like to extract the glutamates and the umami components naturally rather than just dumping MSG in there. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean. I, I wouldn't say that like I do that because of Keizo, but he mm. definitely enforced like reinforced that idea for me. Um, 
I guess I felt strange and I, I will say that maybe it's because of the stigma I had my whole life. And now that I seem a little bit more aware of like, okay, maybe that was just like really bad, like racism all these years. Um, I don't have anything against it at all, but I do find that I like, I like the challenge of making it without. And I guess that maybe seems like naive when you have that shortcut right there. Uh But, um, yeah, it's, it's good to learn. Maybe it, maybe it's the same kind of method where you should learn how to do it without before you use it. Mm. You know, I'm sure if maybe if I have like the devil on one shoulder, when I have a shop one day, like just put it in, it'll save you, (laughs) it'll save you a dollar a bowl, maybe, but no. I know. Right now, the fucking combo is so expensive in the U.S., man. If you dude, want to get the good stuff, dude, it's crazy. Yeah, like, you can just buy a box of American no, no MSG. Joke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they make it here now, right? Like, I yeah, think the is made here now. Yeah, they make it out of corn. So, I mean, yeah, but yeah, like I, I feel like that's kind of the thing, right? Like, it's more of a, it really is like a true test of skill. Like, if you can extract that level of umami out of these natural things, because it's so easy to just dump in the the mm. powder and stuff but i guess the, i guess it's oh go ahead i guess it's kind of like a, a point of pride it's almost like um maybe it's like a you know any other craftsman where they can say like they can say like i don't use any adjuncts or like a, yep. someone who brews craft beer they can say like i don't use lactose like this is a, a wild open cask sour maybe it's it's similar to saying that like it's just a point of pride maybe yeah yep. um but i don't think it detracts from somebody who does use it because if it tastes good it tastes good yeah i so, think a lot of japanese the, the younger japanese ramen chefs are also straying away from it too and I'm, I'm not sure if it's because of the craft aspect of it or if it's just because of marketing but i i've talked to a lot of these well not a lot two two or three of these japanese ramen chefs and they say like oh yeah they don't personally use msg either in their ramen hmm. and yeah. um some of them one of them said it's because he doesn't like the taste of it i guess there's a you can taste it that there's MSG in it rather than the natural. <laughs> my, my, my palate's not that good. <laughs> I can't taste it either. It just tastes like, you know, like if it has umami or not, but yeah, I guess he said he can taste if it's done with MSG or if it's done with kombu or shiitake. And so he says, I will say, I don't know. I don't know if it's actual, just the percentage of glutamates or the actual effects, but like when we go and eat, when I've eaten Jiro or I've eaten like, um, like a cheap tonkatsu shop in Japan, you get that, tingling on the back of your tongue yeah and i've also had that when i've eaten bowls that are like really high rank shops that claim no msg so mm-hmm. it's like it's probably just that tingly umami feeling it's mm-hmm. like almost like it almost seems like an overdose right yeah. like your mouth starts to water after you leave and your tongue kind of tingles Mm-hmm. So I think that when people say they can taste it, maybe they're saying it's they get that sensation. Ah, uh, the overdose um, sensation. Yeah, that's what it feels like to me anyways. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I can tell. And for me, like when I'm in Japan, I've had Jiro there three times. Every single time you watch them dump the MSG and then you leave and it's that same feeling. <laughs> so maybe maybe it's that. I'm, I'm not sure though. <laughs> I know. Like I, For me personally too, like I do know that when I – purposefully use msg in some of the things that i do for the videos and i eat it i get like i think it's just psyching myself out like i get like the sweats and like the things you know like all this like <laughs> textbook chinese restaurant syndrome symptoms that is like this is so bullshit because i know it's like not a real thing but i feel it for some reason but the mind is pretty powerful it can make you think of all, all these things and do these things so yes it can yes yeah. it can so what about um tare your hot takes on that like how should someone approach 
making crap like you said you did 30 tatties you know show you tatties like what's your process yeah. and hot takes on crafting that from scratch hot takes hmm. um i think honestly most most people will be better off just using straight soy sauce and not trying to mess with it at first because if, if you just use 30 mil of straight kikoman for your average bowl of soup i think you might be better off than whatever tata you're going to try and make um yeah hot takes on tata it's such a weird question i don't know <laughs> like like do you want to do you want to like expand on that because i don't really know what to like how to approach that most people sure, like, don't even know what tata is so yeah yeah so well hopefully people that are listening to this podcast know what tata is but true no 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 yeah but, <laughs> but oh yeah i mean this like in terms of like i feel when like i've done that too just use show you just show you and kandasan also recommended for beginners to just use show you as your tata and build around that like how do you approach building off transitioning from just using shoyu to like adding in the umami components like you're if you want to add in a dashi and cut it with dashi and compensate with salt or like how do you progress from just that core component of shoyu for the flavor and umami to building in more components and bringing in more things hmm. so one of the things I've seen, that I've seen your tari recipes you have a lot of things in there so like how did you progress i do i do yeah. yeah and i think now i like i'm not that knowledgeable when it comes to the science aspect of mm -hmm. it and i think I mostly learn through trial and error and um, I'll make a bowl and I will change the ratio every day and I'll change um, the addition into the bottom of the bowl and see what, you know, what you add into the bottom of the bowl, how that plays off the tare and which oils help the tare and which soup helps the tare. And it's such a weird thing because you have to make sure that they're all harmonious because your tare might be great for three bowls in a row and then you put it in the next soup and it doesn't work. Mm. So I mean, it's not like a tare is a one-all solution. You need to make sure that you're adjusting the bowl and the ingredients and the ratios, you know, accordingly, because it's not just going to get you 100% of the way there. But I will say that one of the biggest revelations to me was to treat tare like dashi. And I never um, thought about it like that because, it, I mean, I didn't know anything. So I asked Keizo, I messaged him one day and asked him if I could just go shadow at the old shack before they moved. And he was like, sure, come down. And I remember like just asking all the workers there, Kazel wasn't in and I had not didn't even meet him in that point. And uh, I met him in the morning, very briefly for like 30 seconds and he had to go make noodles. So I remember asking all the employees like, oh, well, so how's the Tade? And they were like, what? Well, we don't know. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. And I remember like, just like throughout the day asking questions and trying to learn. And um, I learned about like kombu and the dashi, I mean, kombu and the tare and katsuboshi and all these elements and reading cookbooks. And then I eventually started taking like Japanese lessons half-heartedly, didn't fall through with it. Yeah, yeah. And I had her help me translate like um, Kuroki-san's cookbook in his shoyu tare. And I saw that he treated it very similar to like a dashi. Oh. He had like a pre-soaking. a pre -soaking, Yeah. And then after it was cooked, he had like a post-soaking where he left things in, mm -hmm. in the actual soy sauce. And once I, that was like a level unlocked for me. It was like, okay, I can play with these elements over a much longer period of time rather than like overnight cook, take them out. So that was the biggest revelation for me. And I would say, um, if you're gonna try and expand on your, your shoyu or shiotare is to maybe take those elements and figure out your intervals. Maybe you want to let them meld for a much longer time, or maybe you want to bring them to a ripping boil. Who knows? Like you just got to figure out what's going to work for you and play around. Like it's never ending. I mean, I've done so many iterations of a shoyutate. It's kind of making me lose my mind. 
that's actually a really good point. Like I never thought about it, but I have seen recipes where, you know, you're cold soaking, almost essentially cold soaking katsubushi and other, other bushis and shiitake in soy sauce or in something. And then you're bringing that up to heat and then letting that sit again. And I never thought mm. of it like treating it like a dashi, but that's essentially what you're doing. You're making so Kuroki san in that book, he mentions, um, I think the recipe says three to four days afterwards at room temp, you leave all the katsuboshi, wow. uh, atsu um, everything that he uses, depending on the shoyu or shio, he leaves it in there at room temp and then um, he changes the paper over the pot every day. So like, it's really an in-depth recipe. Ah. And once I started doing that, I noticed a major improvement on like tweaking those elements and I don't always leave it out room temp for three or four days. Like I'll do all different kinds of things depending on what I'm making. But that was a big, big help for me. Um, yeah. And learning, learning how to do and, and treat it delicately like you would a dashi because I would, I'd make my dashi and I'd monitor the temperatures and be really precise. But my tare, I would just like bring it to a sizzle, <laughs> take it off the heat and take everything off and be like, why does this taste so bad? But <laughs> I yeah, think you yeah. have to be you have to be just as delicate with it as you would a dashi. Oh, that's that's some fucking good advice. What, do you know yeah. the purpose of the newspaper on top? Is it because I've I've seen that a lot too, and I've read that like it traps in the flavors or something. Like, what is the purpose of? Well, I think it it's I think it's the opposite. So when you make a lot of things that are liquid or things that need to breathe, you want a material that will allow it to breathe. You don't want to plastic wrap it. It needs to be something like a cloth, like a cheesecloth or a newspaper, something that has a weave. Like you, some, you know, when you make certain pizza sauces, you want them to breathe a little bit, something that, you know, so like you want things to, to have that air to them. Um, So yeah, I I think that's the reason. I think it's the opposite of, you don't want to trap it in. You want to let it breathe. Oh, that's, that's really good. That's a cool idea. Cause yeah, like you could just throw a, a lid on it, but it's not the same thing. Like they specifically say wrap it with newspaper, wrap it with yeah. something like that. Oh. I don't know a lot of the, those are questions from Mike, but I don't know the, the food science. I just know like what I've learned through yeah. like experience, experience and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. Cool, man. I'm going to clip that one. That was a good clip. What are, what are your what are your thoughts on like choosing oils the right aroma oils for for the bowl like do you have any hot takes on how you do that do you mm. experiment with just like one first or do you try to match one like or do you think of like oh, I think this would work good with this or I think that might be harder than tare because aroma oils are tricky not only in the method that you make them but mm. in the method that you apply them so you need to be like rigorous in how you're actually making your oils because it's very easy to like make them bitter or uh, maybe have some like off flavors right yeah yeah so like monitor them and make sure things aren't burning and you can't just put a pot on the stove and let it rip like um and one thing that i found and watching Kazel make some bowls was like kind of instrumental in this is how much aromatics are just not not aromatics but how naturally aromatic chiyu is on its own. And I think it's very strong. And for a lot of bowls, if you're just trying to build your first bowl and get that really like good ramen taste, just use straight chiyu at first and then maybe slowly introduce some aromatic oils because chiyu is powerful and it's yeah. so good. It's still delicious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, like just use, just be careful with that. And I apply that with a, a light hand and figure out, I think more importantly, what people don't talk about enough is the actual size of the bowl. 
really depends on how much oil you use. So like you can have a recipe that tells you put 20 mil of oil in, but if your bowl is seven inches instead of 10, that's not going to be right because it's going to be, you know, like if you have those small new wave bowls, you only need 15 mils of oil to really get a good even coating. So this is for me personally speaking, like I don't like to have a huge oily bowl. Mm -hmm. So the bigger the bowl, you might need a little bit more oil to coat that surface. That's but true. Yeah. To, to, that's for, just, to actually do what that's just my experience. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. So as far as for noodles, I know you have like one of those Onose Minkis. Somehow you obtain one of those. Yeah, that's pretty cool, man. Like what are, you, what are you, some of your best practices for making good noodles at home? And so did you make all your noodles for your pop-up too? Did you make noodles for your um, pop-up or? For, for two of them, I did. Um, oh. And then, well, for one of them, I did. And then the second one, I made some of the noodles. And then for the third one, I was like, Kezo, just make noodles. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I made them there with him. I like, uh -huh. I spent a lot of time working at the noodle factory with him. And um, he, he was gracious enough to let me come down and just spend time there and learn the process. And um, he was nice enough to let me use the machines to make the noodles for the pop-up. Cool. Um, but for the first one, yeah, I did. And I put them all through my Mercado Atlas before I even had the Ono. Wow. And, yeah, so I made 200 portions with that. Holy shit. that. Yeah. Yeah. That's I was very crazy. I was very stubborn. Yeah. That's fucking great. 200 portion on an atlas. That's that's ridiculous. What are yeah, some of the best practices for making good noodles at home? Like I've seen you, you're very particular with the way directions that you're folding the dough and you know, like the gluten development, gluten structure development. Like what are some of the key points that people should keep in mind when they're making noodles at home? Keep in mind. So the biggest thing for me at home is like, if you're making noodles at home, you don't want to lose any of that precious dough that you spend so much time on. So the biggest thing that I work on is not having any loss because say if you put in a thousand, like a kilogram, and then you end up with only four portions of 160 grams, like you're losing weight. So like you want to make sure that you treat that dough right. And you're not, you're not breaking off pieces and cause it's just so much time invested at home yeah. for the average person. For me, it's like, I love it. I, that's what I care about. But it's, I think if you're going to put the time in, like focus on making all of your measurements exact and treating your dough with care and making sure that you're folding it the right way. And um, one of the weirdest things that I figured out was to cut my strips into the size of my rollers or just a little bit underneath. So like if you have a Mercado Atlas, what I used to do is I would measure, I used to have a measurement on a cutting board and I would measure just a little bit underneath that because you're going to combine it twice right mm -hmm. so it's gonna it's gonna flatten out a little bit um i would measure it just under like a hair underneath that and by the time you combine it twice it's gonna be the full size of that roller so you're gonna minimize your loss and you're gonna save yourself some time in the future and then you can freeze those portions and i mean for me like if i want to eat a bowl i don't go out and buy noodles i make them so like i just like to have them in the freezer i don't want to go and spend three hours and make <laughs> yeah, noodles yeah. i want to just <laughs> i want to pull them out of the freezer you know yep so yeah. As far as tips at home, um, yeah, I don't know. I would say simplify things and don't go crazy over the measurements. Just try and make it easy on yourself. One, one gram kansui, one gram salt, and just, mm. yeah, you don't, you don't need to be that precise because it's just you eating it. And unless you really want to go that extra level, then go for it. But I think if you just want to eat a bowl, like don't stress yourself. Make it fun. Because noodles aren't fun. <laughs> yeah, noodles fucking suck to make. <laughs> yeah, they're you, not. They're not easy. How do you how do you get it so you don't lose a lot of dough? Like I probably lose 
about a half serving of dough every time I make yes. noodles. Like it's how stuffed, do you, right? Like yeah, like you just see like that pile of like little broken noodles on the side. I'm like, what the? Sometimes so I try to Benz, eat them. But, uh, Eric Benson and I talk about this a lot. Like we'll message each other and we'll be like, we'll message like the gram weights and be like, I lost this much, and he'll be like, <laughs> nice, and, and he'll message me and be like, I lost this much, and I'll be like, wow, dude, great. And it's it's tricky, man. And like I'll have some batches where man, like not everyone's a success i'll tear up dough if i'm trying to make like a 33 to 36 percent dough or even like 30 percent dough man if you don't hydrate that thing right yeah. oh you know what i guess i guess i could say the best tip for someone at home if you really want to stray below like 35 36 percent really learn when your dough is hydrated because it's what that not feels like what it feels like and how it looks and um watch the side of the bowl and make sure that you're not leaving any dust on the side of the bowl and give your additions of water very slowly. And I've, I've been like so stupid as to where like I've tried to make hakata at home and I've done like a spray bottle <laughs> to try and like make sure I'm not like putting too much water in one spot. It's hard, man. It's yeah. hard without like a commercial mixer. But I would say that I would say like really pay attention and mix with your hands. Don't be afraid to mix with your hands. Like I've broken my KitchenAid twice and it's, Honestly, from now on, I will only mix with my hands. Oh, really? That's really good. I saw that's the only way that I've done it. I have a KitchenAid. I've never used it to make noodles. I've always just used my hands. Yeah. And like wear gloves because the Kansui, if you have <laughs> yeah. sensitive skin, like I have sensitive skin, <laughs> Kansui is no joke. Like wear yeah. gloves. <laughs> I got these like uh, calluses from like I used to work at my dad's factory. He had like a um, ice manufacturing factory and it's like my hands are like completely callous from working there for 20 years. So. I don't nice. have any problems with that, but yeah, I can imagine. Kansu is some gnarly stuff if you're putting. Yeah, like yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm pretty like fair skinned. So, like, my man, if I don't wear gloves, like, even when I was working with Keizo, just from like the actual dust, the like, dust of the Kansu. Oh man, like up my arms, I'd have like a weird rash. Like, oh man. Kans yeah, Kansu is brutal. So, yeah. if you have, if you're a fair skinned person, like, be careful, wear some gloves. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool. That's some good stuff, man. What about toppings as far as like, you would have to go through all of them, but do you, what are you typically using for your toppings? Chashu, what do you do? For like a, a pop-up or like at home? Either at home or um, a pop-up. At, at pop-ups, I try and just do like standard chashu, um, menma, negi, um, nori. I actually don't enjoy naruto or nori, but I know that people love the visual look of them. Yeah. I don't, I'd like naruto more than nori. Um, in Nori, I only, I love it in Sukeman because I find it gives you like a little kind of like refreshing bite, yeah. but like in a bowl of shoyu, I feel like it, once you take a bite of it, it like it does, it overpowers the rest of the bowl. Yeah, yeah. So that's a weird, I guess that's a hot take. I don't enjoy Nori, but, um, <laughs> I do Chashu, Menma, Nori, Ajitama, Negi, just the standard stuff. And sometimes mm. spinach, which I definitely learned to love from eating Keizo shoyu. Yeah. Spinach is underrated. Definitely. Yeah, I love I love the spinach. And when I like when he taught me how to make the spinach, I was like, oh shit, like I get to learn how to make this now. <laughs> <laughs> nice, man. Cool. So I got some listener questions here. That was some great stuff. Or I, I'm trying to get some good tips for people because I think a lot of people that listen to this are trying to listen to get better at making ramen. So I'm not sure. gonna waste this opportunity to talk to you. I hope I can man. help. <laughs> no, dude. It's good stuff. So let's get some listener questions here. Cause I got some you got some like, you know, I got a lot. I usually get a lot of questions for people, but these are some really, what, what is interesting about your one is like the people that came out to ask questions are like, you know, like you got Eric asking questions and Mike asking questions. So it's, I think, I think it's pretty cool. Um, 
But first of all, can you explain what Kezo means by Beavis? That's the only thing he left in the comment field. <laughs> who, who said that? Kezo. <laughs> <laughs> so growing up, I used to have like a very, I was so hyper as a kid. I told you I have like inherently, like I think I have ADHD. Dude, and I, that's not my a mom, I think I have it too. And I think my kid has it too. So yeah. yeah. So I used to laugh like crazy. Like <laughs> my mom used to call me, she still does call me Beavis. So Kezo and my mom, like they talk a little bit, like they're very friendly, like, uh-huh. um, and he found out that she calls me Beavis. So now once in a while, I'll just call me Beavis. <laughs> that's, so, that's so cool that you're, I mean, I don't know if it's cool, but like your mom was, you know, like my generation's parents are like, oh, don't fucking watch that show. That's like garbage. And your mom's like, they're calling you Beavis. Uh, my mom's cool. awesome. She never, yeah. she never censored anything, which is, I think, pretty important. But <laughs> yeah, personally, personally, I think it's important. Yeah, I know. Like I struggle with that with my family because my wife's pretty, um, not conservative, but she's like, you know, pretty proper. And mm, I, yeah. I'm not like I grew up in a, my parents probably didn't watch us very well. So we watched like all kinds of things when we were kids and had all these experiences and so on trying to balance that with my kid like my kid says some funny stuff and i laugh and she's like screaming for it. <laughs> don't laugh at that <laughs> yeah. yeah don't laugh when he says that <laughs> okay. oh so this is an interesting one so speaking of keizo matsudai ramen asks how is it working with keizo like what's the most important thing you learned from him both practically and more broadly like mindset culture wise he says mm. i love scott he's such a nice dude that's what <laughs> thanks, uh thanks man um working with keizo man i learned a lot from him but i think 95 percent of it would be more applicable to life than about ramen um just the work ethic was i grew up thinking like i had a pretty good work ethic and i knew what it was to like devote yourself to something and you know be there and being there is 99 percent of something you got to show up so when i met him and he gave me the opportunity i knew that i had to show up and what i learned was that man he just the hours and the the attention to detail and the care and he is uh very regimented but he doesn't let it show he's a very like strong guy um learned a lot from him more so about life than ramen i think when we were bullshitting and talking it wasn't about ramen it wasn't about noodles it was more so about like how to approach situations and um how to treat them and what to think and yeah I, i learned it was more so much more um it was rewarding in that aspect. I wouldn't say that I would like, I would never dig him for questions about like, uh, which show you do you use and blah, blah, blah. And like I would, but not, not a lot, you know? I feel like that's probably the majority of the questions he gets on Instagram, you know, like, Hey Keza, what show you should I use for my tire? You know, like that's kind yeah, of people are yeah. probably hitting him all the time. Yeah. I, I feel like, I feel like it's almost, if you ask someone of his, of his stature, questions like that it kind of is like you know well he has so like so many things to say and teach you like maybe pay attention to the rest of it like there's so much to be learned from him and it's it's like osmosis yeah just from being around him you learn a lot so Uh Um, and i feel like he's probably walked a very interesting path in terms of like his involvement like i gotta be honest like before i when i started first posting my videos like i didn't really know who he was like i've heard of ramen burger and stuff you know but i didn't really know about all the things that he's done but he's he's done a lot for ramen in the U S in terms of like mm. what he's been able to do and like his experiences of starting these companies and things for good or for worse, you know, like the things that he's gone through, he probably contributed a lot to where he is today and what he's able to talk to you about. And how to do yeah, the coolest part to me is that it's, um, it, he actually, he treats it how, how I, I like to treat things where there's a, um, 
like a respect there. And if you ask him about something, it's almost like a, it's almost like an encyclopedia. Like he knows, he probably knows that person and he probably knows something. If he doesn't know them, then he knows something related to it. And it's just, um, it's very like a, it sets you at ease and you realize that like, it's like a very, that person can mentor you on any level. And yeah, it's just, it's just a really good environment to learn in. Um, yeah. Super helpful. <laughs> the, the best. Hi Kezo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Let's see. We've got a lot of questions here. I'm going to kind of jump around to try to find some of the things. Okay. Here's one from Mike. Um, ramen Lord asks, who do you look up at? Who do you look up to in the American ramen community besides Kezo, obviously? Hmm. Oh man, that's tough. I love Clint and I love talking to him. Um, honestly, Clint is doing like next level stuff and you see the care that he's putting into it. And just from like a little bit I've seen of his Instagram stories, that is, that's an example of that Kodawadi can work here. He sells out in minutes and his bulls are elegant and they're not, um, they're flashy, but they're not in your face. And his bulls just look so well thought out. Um, as far as like a like born and bred American chefs, um, I love Clint. I love Eric Bentz, man. Like that dude, his pedigree is insane. Like French Laundry and everything he's done. And um, I love his methods and I love nerding out with him on Instagram. Um, Mike, obviously, just for everything he's done. And actually, like I think he's made miso probably the most popular recipe for people to make at home which is cool because i fucking love miso um yeah there's a, a big list i love i love eric from from dc like hosaki you know he's mm. he's the man but i think i think clint clint and eric right now those guys are those guys are killing it they're they're pushing the boundaries and i respect that a lot yeah i try to get clint on too clint is one of those elusive white whales for me him Kazo, <laughs> and you but it's i got you so Oh man, Clint's Clint's busy, man. He's got a <laughs> yeah. kid. He's you know, he's he's grilling out in the backyard now. Yakitori <laughs> yeah, guy. Yakitori guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So speaking of Eric, Eric Bentz. I got questions from both Eric's, by the way, but you kind of answered Eric Yu's question. So Eric Bentz is um <laughs> there's probably a backstory to this, which I don't know. So you're gonna have to fill it in. But Eric Bentz asked in detail, what happened when you tried to order the special Tsukimen at Rockin' Billy Super One? <laughs> He told me no, man, because he knew I hadn't been there before. <laughs> he told me no. What are you he saying? Told me, yeah, he told me no straight up when I, I walked in. I had a, they had on the menu, and I, I was looking at the menu, and I was so nervous. Like my girlfriend and I pointed to that, and and the, it was, wasn't him, but he had a, a waitress come around and take the orders, and I said Sukeman, and she looked at him, and she looked at me, and she was just like no. So <laughs> yeah. So I, I got the show you and my girlfriend got the shio and I we 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 ate both bowls we shared them yeah could you explain but, no, like, I got, could you explain what what's special about this special uh, skimen and like why why is that something never that had it I, I wouldn't know uh, um, but is it like so, a legendary thing or like why you know. so supposedly if, if he doesn't recognize you he won't serve it to you because really? he thinks that yeah you should have the show you or the shio first um, I could be wrong on that but he definitely didn't want me to eat it that day so. Wow. <laughs> that's freaking fun that's like that's the what we we're talking about earlier where these guys would rather be making ramen than selling ramen you know the opposite yeah. of um a lot of people i mean he's he's, he's one of those kings man he's yeah. gonna be on you know the mount rushmore obviously like that's yeah who's your who's your mount rushmore for japanese ramen chefs right now who do you think's on that 
Currently? Yeah. Oh, man. You're going to expose my ignorance. I don't know if I know all their names. No, I, um, I don't know anybody either, man. Like, when, when we're talking to Ivan, Ivan's, like, listening off all these people. I'm like, oh, yeah, cool. I don't fucking know. Yeah. This I gotta look them so, up like, after. I don't know. I don't know the chef's names. Like, I know Shono-san. Yeah. Um, but as far as, like, chefs go, I don't – that seems very ignorant to me, but I don't know their actual names. But I would say as far as shops go. Um, That's actually very Japanese, that- you know. According to Abram, he said a lot of Japanese people don't know the chefs either. It's, like, the shops. So yeah. they're actually right in line with Japanese ramen nerds. Oh, well, well, perfect. Then. <laughs> um, right now, for me personally, where, where my taste buds align, I would say, um, oh man, I love, I love Nakiryu. I love, I love their Tantan men. Um, I would say, oh man, it's going to kill me. I can't think of the name of the place. There's a place in Asakusa where it's, uh, they do the Tomomi noodles. And I've suggested it to everybody and I can't remember the name of it. It's a little, it's a little like, it's a little tiny shop. Um, and maybe, man, I would say Tomita, like that bowl was, that bowl was insane to me. Um, I'm not so much of a fan of, I love toy box and I love those bowls, but for me, they're not like the, those aren't the top tier for me. I know that they're like the popular ones right now, but I love the Tantan men. Yeah, well, I haven't been there yet. And Eric Benz always tells me, you know, next time I go, I have to go. But yeah, um, you'll, you'll hear it if you listen to the podcast with Abram and and um, Brian. But I was I was like, okay, they're 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 very um uh they're 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 heavily involved in the ramen industry, so they can't obviously say like this is the best, you know, or like so they're very like careful with their words in terms of like mm. like oh who do you think is the best? Like well, there's so many things. Like what. What style do you want? Where are you located? But when I said, what would you recommend for me to eat if I'm looking for this kind of bowl? Both of them are like, eat a shoten right away. So it must be something that's, he's, but they're like, don't eat it right away because then you, you won't even appreciate it. It's like driving a Ferrari for your first car if that's the first Oh, really? So that's, like, that's, that's how they both described it to me. So hmm. um, I would say, I'd like, to, I'd like to add in that uh, Warito in, in Shibuya is my favorite Sukeman, I think. Uh, it's not like the, it's not the top ranked or anything, but that's my favorite, favorite shop. I've eaten there like five times. <laughs> well, yeah. All right. So let's, okay. We're going to start banging out these questions because we've been going for about an hour and a half and that's kind of long. For oh, sorry. No, no, no. Not for me. I love this stuff, but I know people are like, it's so long. Why don't you cut, tighten it up? So um, Jaded one asks, um, she, he would, she, or she would just like to know like um, the average day of like, from in terms of prep to service, she works in the industry as well, like a restaurant industry too, I think. Okay. So like what, how long does it take to prep all these components for service? Like, is it a week over the span of a week or hmm. um, how do you so I've, do this all? I've done both ways. Um, I've, I've spread the prep out over a week when I've done pop-ups and I've also prepped in a day and a half. Oh, so <laughs> obviously you can do everything in a day and a half with your, your tare and your oils you can assume are prepped ahead of time because the shelf life is obviously much longer. Um, but as far as your toppings and your soup goes, you can do it like you want to get there early. So um, I don't have the luxury of like having the keys to these places or stuff like that. So you have to wait for the owner to let you in and then you have to hope they let you stay late and um, your schedule has to be tight. Like you have to make sure that your, your timelines are tight and, say you start soup at this time, you know that you can accomplish X, Y, and Z within those hours. So I've started soup at 6 a.m. 
and in a hundred liter pot, it's not going to be ready to temp to where you start clocking it for maybe an hour and a half. <laughs> like, you know, even, even on a huge range, like it's not going to be at 190 for a long time. Uh-huh. Um, so once you skim it and once the soup is ready to go and you can kind of let it be and not have to freak out about the bubbles, you can start your chashi, you can start your menma, you can start your eggs. Um, and then you, in between all that, you're chopping negi um, and just doing all the other prep, like uh, cut, make, if your nori is not cut. So my first pop-up, my second pop-up, I didn't have pre-cut nori, so I was cutting it all myself. <laughs> um, then you got to slice all the Naruto. Then you get all your bowls ready and sanitized and you can do it in a day and a half, but you're going to be there from six in the morning. Um, and I'm speaking strictly solo prep. I didn't have much help. Um, my help always comes like day of, I have people oh. helping me for service, but, um, prep is just like me. And then like, when I get angry, my girlfriend's there, she's like <laughs> taking the part of it, but <laughs> it's just me. And so, so like usually from like 6am to like late at night, um, my first one, I prepped until 3am and then crap. I woke up. Yeah, I woke up the next day and prepped some more. And you still want to do it? That's crazy. <laughs> it's like, well, the, the whole idea I've... is, like, if you, if you're good at it, you spread the prep out. And yeah, it's not that. It's not that every day. <laughs> but I, I can just imagine, like, you know, like with Kazo, because he doesn't take too many shortcuts either, and like you're doing Zero. it every single day, and it's like, man, like sometimes I I make a video and I shoot it over three days, and I'm beat after. I'm I'm just gonna make instant ramen next week because it's like. Yeah. I can't even imagine like how hard it is to do that every every day. It's tough, man. My yeah. girlfriend thinks I'm crazy. I'll, I'll work 12 hours and come home and like make noodles <laughs> or or something like that and it's yeah, I guess maybe I am a little bit crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the true passion there. Um so Elvin asks one of the things I'm curious about is the differences between New York City and Providence in terms of the reception of people to different styles of ramen and how easy it, it how easy it is it to break into the ramen or food community in each city? Hmm. So Providence's food community is like super diverse. And like I said before, like very strong, but they're so welcoming. And there's a lot of pop-ups here. And there's a lot of people like trying to flex and, and make what they believe in. And the town is so supportive. But I think I might have, like Sarah mentioned, she had an advantage in Nashville because it's kind of like a ramen desert. So like people here like have had bowls and, you know, there's not much ramen here. People haven't been exposed to it. So even if you're eating bad ramen, it's still going to be good to you if that's all you know. Yeah. So even if I spend all my time caring and crafting, I think even my worst bowl will be something that people here will enjoy. So I'm kind of at like an advantage there. Uh, New York is going to be much more difficult than you more refined palate in terms of ramen, probably for. People oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think so. Um, yeah, New York is more difficult no matter what business you're doing, I think. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Andre Key asks, what do you do to achieve balance in your ramen? Hmm. I think the first thing you have to do is try and strip away any elements that you you don't feel contribute to the bowl. So say if you add something to your tare and then you eat the bowl and you don't taste it, you, most likely you don't need it. Uh-huh. And people want to dump all these things in. And like, I'm guilty of that for sure. It took me a long time to like figure out the right balance of things I want to add to my tare or my oil. Like you don't need to make a shallot negi niboshi oil. Maybe, maybe just chiyu and negi oil would be good. You know, you don't need all these elements. Um, But the biggest thing for me was figuring out uh, ratios and getting proper ladles. 
which seems like such a silly thing that your tools will help you that much, but they really do. Um, and making sure that you're consistent every time. And that, I mean, literally those ladles do create balance because it's the same every time, but you have to know like, okay, this bowl calls for 10 mil, that one, maybe 15, you keep it in your notes. And, um, but I'd say stripping away ingredients for sure is the most important thing. That's, that's fascinating because like in music, there's a, there's a similar concept where when you watch people take solos, they say the really, really good people can do like a one note solo where basically they're just hitting one note, you know, okay. in different ways instead of, and then people who are on the, on the come up will think that adding more notes faster and jamming more things in is what makes a solo great. And sure. so like, you'll see, like I've seen, I've been played and performed with and just hang out with people that are phenomenal musicians and they'll, they'll take a solo and they'll literally just play one note for a minute. And it's mm. just like, syncopating varying the 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 time that they're using it and things like that and it's like that's pretty interesting to 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 think about that that's there's such an overlap too again with the uh, cooking because i think that's something that i've been kind of working on too is stripping away things that aren't really necessary it's i think it's kind of the same idea if you're reading like um like film critics or uh, music critics or even like a, a novel if somebody tries to be too verbose and they're trying to use vocabulary like that is going to be impressive. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it's going to be good. Like yeah. you have to be able to convey your ideas with simplicity. And it's, if you can't do that, then you're not going to do it with complexity either. So <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. All right. Um, let's see what else. Oh, he also asks whole egg or split egg. That's like a troll. Whole egg. That's like, that's like a joke from the discord server that they argue about all the time. So oh, I don't go on. I don't go on there. No, no, I don't. There. I don't blame you. It's a bunch <laughs> of uh, degenerates down there. But but that's kind of um, like a joke question from this from this. Server. I will say I do like split egg, but it has to be only half. Uh-huh. It can't be two halves. I don't two like halves. the two halves. Yeah, for the aesthetic. You don't like it for aesthetic. Yeah, or? the aesthetic. The aesthetic. It doesn't doesn't look good to me. Yeah, I find the same yeah. thing. Always, always looks like eyes, no matter what. <laughs> you got to put no one on each side of the bowl, and then yeah, put the chashu yeah. in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> all right um, um okay so you actually answered his one of his questions but chila quila asks what is your fondest ramen memory oh man hmm that's tough can we come back can we circle back to that yeah we'll I'll circle think back about, to you'll think about it in the back of my head for a second sure I'll, I'll throw you some 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 easy ones from your friends so clementine brass brass asks What's your favorite, what's your favorite bar and why is it scurvy? <laughs> so that's like the local dive bar, like right yeah. down the street from me and they have a pool table and that's exactly why <laughs> I'm a, I'm a pool degenerate. Oh, cool. Man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. This is probably another one of your friends. Sheffrey Dahmer. Asks, yeah. What's your favorite Sugar Ray song and what are the benefits to folding dough in a mixer by <laughs> versus by hand? <laughs> Um, so if, if I answer one song, my girlfriend will kill me. So I'm going to say, I love all Sugar Ray songs equally. Um, and definitely I would never fold by hand. No way. I will always roll that dough through some kind of tossing machine. <laughs> Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Cody. What, what's up with the Sugar Ray thing? Like, what, is that like an inside joke? Or? Um, so he was, so I've met him one time, but we bonded instantly down in Nashville and he's eating, I think, Sarah's ramen and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But um, he was Mark McGrath for Halloween one year. So, 
um yeah <laughs> that's that's hilarious. okay yeah. so this we got, a couple, we got a couple questions about this one from this is from Akadiruzan. i don't know how to pronounce oh that. yeah yeah he's from turkey i believe he's okay i talk to him all the time on instagram he's a good okay dude. cool cool so he's asking will scott ever open a ramen his own ramen restaurant hmm. and i think someone I, else asked that too i can't find it though. that's the goal so slowly figuring out how to do that um whatever that avenue is like do i need a noodle machine um what kind of space do i need what's my business model um yeah that's for sure the plan and i would like to see that come to fruition but um if anything spending time with kazel may realize you have to really you got to do some serious soul searching if that's what you want to do it's a lot of hours yeah. a lot of hours um and just like any if anybody's in the food industry they know the money's not always there and you better really severely love what you do. Um, so yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm looking into it. Um, I think I'll probably look into it in some aspect every day. How do yeah. you think it's going to be after we come out of this Corona thing? Like, how do you think it's going to change all that stuff? Like, I think I'm very much an optimist in that regard. I think that people are going to kind of support more so. Um, but also I can definitely see on the other side and be a realist where um, both the public and restaurant owners are going to be kind of hesitant to um, allow dine-in to be the same. And I think that they're probably in the right for doing so. Um, but for myself, I can say that I definitely miss the dining experience a lot. And I miss that uh, intimacy and those, the feelings you get from eating somewhere. It's, it's not just the food. Like that's, you say the food is like 60% of it. The rest of it is like, man, like you're in this spot right now. And it's like a comfort zone. So I'm liking, I'm trying to be an optimist about it, even though I realize that it's probably going to be changed forever or at least for the next one to three years. Yeah. 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 They said it was like, it's fucking crazy. Like I was just reading something or watching something. They said that this is going to get off on a bad tangent, but I, I want to say this because it's interesting. I found it fascinating, but um, they said like there are certain countries like Sweden that never did lockdowns or anything. They, they, they strove for herd immunity. And so they had none of the lockdowns that we had in the U.S., but they said that the economy has shown the same effects as if they did a lockdown just because of the human nature of what humans don't want to get it. So they said like, yeah. the restaurant industry, travel, hotel, they're all down at similar percentage levels to America, which is fascinating to mm. me because it's like it wasn't even driven by government regulation or intervention. It's just human nature. And so how what's was it going to take for just humans to come out of that on the other end and saying like, oh, yeah, I want to go eat at restaurants again. Exactly. So if, if they if they self police to that level, yeah, they're probably going to self police to a level where they're not going to immediately jump back into a crowded restaurant environment. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you're right. It's it's going to be. We're just going to have to, like Trump says, we're just going to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Let's. They got a lot of questions about. It. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. No. 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 That is. Uh, yeah. I guess that's true. The only thing that we can do kind of right now. <laughs> what are, what, why do we have so many questions about making noodles? Like you seem to be like a noodle expert according to these questions. It's because like it's the only thing I post on Instagram. Making, <laughs> noodles. Like, making noodles. Yeah. It's like maybe people like saw like, Oh, talk to Scott. They like check their Instagram really quickly. And uh, so like, I got a bunch of questions. Like how do you fold noodles at home for quantities that don't fit in Ziploc bags? What's a good method for kneading? They don't stomping. fit in Ziploc bags. I guess like if you're going to use your feet to stomp on them in a bag, like if you're making yep. such a huge quantity, what do you do? So break them up into multiple bags? or So for um, my first pop-up, what I did 
because I realized the Ziploc bags were too small and trash bags were too big, I actually purchased. So, so I'm going to answer this question in regards to like, if you're making quantity, it's too much. Okay. Um, I purchased like food safe bags that were like 20 inches long. And oh, I would actually, okay, okay. I would mix the dough to fill those bags um, and then like wrap them in cheesecloth and stomp on them with like fresh wool socks because I was crazy. <laughs> but if you don't, if you don't want to do that, you can just roll it out like a normal uh, Italian pasta dough. Um, just if your hydration is above like 36 or 37, you should be fine. Um, you can use a wine bottle. You can use a, a rolling pin. Um, you don't need to have it in a plastic bag. Yeah. Um, I just find that it, it helps because as soon as you're done eating, I like to rest it. So it just helps to already have it in the bag. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And if you're really concerned about waste, you can, I don't, I don't wash the bags out. I just turn them inside out uh -huh. and let them air out, but you can wash them too. Like, you know, you don't have to throw the bag away immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Do people, yeah. do you find people are weirded out by the stepping on the noodles? So at, at first I thought they would be. And I'm like, <laughs> after like multiple, multiple times of posting the videos, like I actually, I, walk on them in the noodle box. I had noodle boxes made for me for like, for pop-ups. Oh, and I okay. walk on them, I walk on them wrapped in like plastic, um, double layered in the noodle boxes. And nobody said anything to me, or maybe they're too horrified to, <laughs> I don't know. But, I'd rather yeah. not see how the sausage is made. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, what, what, uh, this is to say from the same guy. Um, this is from Alistair Paul, Paul, how much, Room temperature aging is advisable for a home cook, and how much fridge time? For tare or noodles? Um, noodles. Oh, so I've actually I've only experimented with this a few times. Um, I don't know what's advisable, and I'm not, I'm not going to advise you to do anything. <laughs> I know that you can put like one percent of some alcohol solution, maybe like vodka, or um, and I've just learned this from like watching Mike post on Instagram. Um, I've never done it. Um, I know that if you're using egg powder or a whole egg, I would say maybe be careful, but you're boiling them anyways. So, yeah. I mean, really it's up to you, but I've only done it once. And, um, for me, I just, I just never experimented with it. Yeah. And I'm always, not really big into like the Sapporo, like glossy noodle glossy thing. Noodles. So, so you always just rest in the fridge. Yeah. I usually rest in the fridge at least a day. Okay. Uh, let's see trying to go through these i kind of went out of order so so this guy raf oz on oh god i'm butchering this name <laughs> rafans asked asked some insights into his tsukiman adventure in quarantine quarantine mm, like insight into mine um yeah i don't i don't really know what that means but i i definitely went kind of crazy making like all kinds of variations of like niboshi tsukiman that's probably so what he was. Like, he probably was watching you on Instagram and saying like, "Oh, okay, yeah, yeah." So I made like three or four different variations, um, and I mean, really, like I was just trying to figure out which bone combinations worked the best. Um, and to be honest, like after making three or four batches, it it's the differences are so like negligible that <laughs> like whatever gets you that gelatin content, figure that out. And as long as your methods are sound, I don't think that your bone makeup. Oh, I'm getting a phone call. Sorry. Oh, no worries. Uh, wait, can you see me? All right, cool. Um, for me, I kind of went crazy with the noodles. So I made so many different variations of noodles, um, whole wheat content, egg content, egg whites, um, protein content, cake flour, all different kinds of things. Um, that I would send like 
pictures of me like having broken noodles on my workbench to Keizo and he'd be like, what'd you do differently? <laughs> like it was just, yeah, I went crazy with Tsukeman noodles. So I eventually found one that I think from here on out I'll be using um, as like my standard to, to build off of. Do you, do you find yourself like once you land on something, you just kind of stick with that or, and then not really experiment after that? Or do you constantly, are you constantly still trying to push it even if you kind of have one that you kind of like and in terms of like anything, tare noodles, soup or. So for noodles, I, for like a regular chintan noodle that I want to pair with like a shoyu or shio. Yeah. I've kind of stopped experimenting only because I've have like one ratio that I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I bought a new cutter from Japan and then like that kind of drove me crazy. Um, I had a cutter like special made from the same man that I purchased the machine <laughs> from in uh, Nagoya, uh, Akira-san. And he mailed me a 1.75 millimeter cutter, oh, cool. which is like very similar to like the sizes that like all the new wave shops are using. Yeah, yeah. So once I got that new cutter, I, my recipe kind of wasn't as slippable. It, would, it was kind of, um, it wasn't like holding the soup the same way that it was cutting at like 1.3. Mm. So this was super nerdy, but I had to like yeah. refigure out like hydration. And uh, what it was for me was I upped the constantly to like 1.2. And that really like, that was the only variable that I changed for my other recipe. And that helped a lot. Um, oh, that's fascinating. Like, I'm not that's super big on the science. Like I wish I knew which element helped. I'm more of like a brute force, try every variable. <laughs> like, yeah, but that worked for me. Cool. Cool. All right. Um, got a couple other ones. You can just answer these quickly. So this is from Sardal. What are some alternate meat toppings other than pork? Um, I love chicken breast. Um, I've done chicken breast. I've done chicken tenders. Um, and I've done fried chicken. That was fun. I had I made some fried chicken. I dumped it in a tonkatsu that I had. And that was like a very gluttonous bowl. Um, but I mean, really, the only if you think me, like you got chicken, pork, or beef. And I've never done beef. Um, I think I would always opt for chicken before beef, unless I had some really like elegant cuts, like a wagyu or something. Um, but I do love chicken breast with like a touch of yuzu. That's always a solid, you know, salt and pepper on the outside, touch of yuzu in the bag, like sous vide it. Um, and chicken tenders, you can treat the same way, but fried chicken's fun. If you want to get weird, like <laughs> throw it in a, throw it in a python. Yeah, it's good. How do you feel about like these American ramen kind of things or like, you know, I mean, there's, um, I'm not, a, I don't really think there is an American ramen thing, but I know Mike posted about it in the past. Like, what do you yeah. think about, like, to me, it's just like, as long as I, I feel like and I, I, the Japanese chefs that I talk to, too, they don't really seem to have much issue with weird and wacky things in ramen. It's just as long as it's thoughtful and you're putting, th- putting things together in a way that there was intent with the ingredients that you chose and things like that. Mm. And I feel like so, maybe that's the only thing American ramen is missing is the intent. I don't know. What do you think on that? I guess if you if it was somebody who was trying and really putting their time into making like quote unquote an American bowl of ramen. Um, I don't really see a, a, a problem with it as long as they're, they're trying to make a bowl and they put all this time and effort in mm-hmm. like, you know what? That's 90% more than most people are going to do. So if they enjoy it, like good, good for them. Like, I don't, I don't think, I don't want to ever come from a place where I think that something is wrong. Um, yeah. But I personally don't, enjoy like the super like over the top spicy like that's i love kikambo and i love going to those shops but it's not um 
something I would seek out. And that seems mm-hmm. to be really popular around me is like the spicy miso. Huh. Um, Interesting. But, um, why is yeah, that? Why do you think that, that is? Like, why do you think spice oh, has just, been, it's just so easy. It's just <laughs> such an easy thing to nail. Like, uh-huh. and it's also like, it's kind of hard to screw up, right? Like you can go and have a bad show. You, you can yeah. have a bad shio and it's going to fall flat, even if you don't have the ramen palette, but spicy miso, it's kind of hard to, screw that up miso is just a umami bomb and mm-hmm. americans are their palates are geared towards spicier things and abrasive really harsh flavors so i think it like buffalo chicken it's just it's just <laughs> pre- it's just prevalent everywhere you know it's it's so common that's true that is true like you have like the um mexican influence throughout california and it's always like this spicier stuff too they're they're kind of going after and yeah like like wing places up near me are like super popular and uh, buffalo chicken pizza mm-hmm. all those all those elements you know it's just a very it's a very common taste for us so it's easy like a more in your face flavor profile huh yeah that's interesting because i grew up in hawaii and everybody here eats saimin and it's like such a subtle it's almost it's basically like dashi in noodles it's yeah, cl- yeah, yeah. real close to that level of subtlety and that's what everybody eats here so it's kind of a weird thing to think that i wish we had that here <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up here. We almost went two hours, man. That was re- this is really fun. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, dude, I'm happy. Like, I, I love doing this. I think this is one of the most fun podcasts I did in a long time. Not that anything else wasn't fun. I had fun in all of them, but just to nerd out for two hours talking about ramen and making ramen. Hell yeah. It's awesome. It's fucking awesome. So, all right. So you got any plans for anything? Pop-ups coming up or anything? Or <sighs> I was doing kits out of my house and um, even that felt a little bit strange to me. Like, how do I how do I make sure that I, everything is kosher and I'm not, you know, wearing gloves and yeah, yeah. that would just felt weird, but I was giving them out to close friends and stuff like that. Um, as far as pop-ups go, I want to say that I'm eager, but I'm also not in a rush. I'm going to wait and see how things pan out here. Mm-hmm. Um, I do respect what all the restaurants in town are doing and how they're treating it. And they're treating their employees first before, you know, customers and making sure that their safety is key. So if I do have a pop-up in the next month or two, it's not going to be a dine-in style. Yeah, um, yeah. It's going to solely be like takeaway. Um, Kits or something. And yeah, either a kit or I'm going to figure out how to do like, if I can do some kind of pop-up where I can give you a, a warmish soup um, that you can even just heat up a little bit at home. And that way you don't have to do the whole cooking of the noodles. Like you can give them a shocked noodle or something like that but I realized that you put yourself in a, a space where there's so many bad things can happen. Like they, they, they throw it in the fridge and then they're stuck together or yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe like a pop-up with kid sales. Um, other than that, I really don't have any plans. I just kind of have to wait and see how things pan out here. It's, it's kind of all uncertain. Cool. Cool, man. I mean, not cool that it yeah. sucks that this uncertain, but wishing you the best for any kind of things like that in the future. All right, man. Yeah, can you tell everybody? Yeah. Can you tell everybody where they can find you and uh, online? And sure, sure my last name is kind of hard to spell, but it's <laughs> Scott LaChapelle on Instagram, um, and that's really my only outlet for ramen. I haven't really found a name for my creative ventures yet, but that's about it. I, I post random stories here and there, and whatever I find about making noodles and soup, and yeah. Awesome. I'll link it up in the uh, show notes, and I guarantee there's going to be a lot of people asking you questions after this one, so. Be <laughs> yeah send me a dm i answer I usually answer all of them so. <laughs> cool man all right thanks so much thanks very much for coming yeah. on yeah good chatting with you man
Thanks so much again to Scott for coming on the show. Like I said at the beginning, he's someone I've been trying to get on for a while and was super stoked when he finally came on and he did not disappoint. I hope you learned something and if you want to ask Scott a question, feel free to hit him up on Instagram. He's very open with all of his knowledge. You can find him at Scott LaChapelle. I'll put the spelling in the show notes. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Way of Ramen and feel free to send me any requests for guests you'd like to see on the show and I'll see what I can do. And if you like this podcast, you can support it at anchor.fm slash wayoframen. You can also follow my ramen journey as I continue to try to get better at making ramen on YouTube by searching The Way of Ramen. I recently did a Tonkotsu Gyokai Tsukimen with the help of Scott and another former podcast guest, Eric Bentz, which we mentioned on this episode. It was by far the best Tonkotsu thing that I've done so far, so these guys really know what they're talking about. That's it for this episode. Thank you guys all so much for listening. I really do appreciate all the support, and I'll see you all in the next episode. Peace.